The History of Philosophy, Founders of Western Philosophy, Thales to Hume. Lecture 4. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Up to now, you have been offered in the history of philosophy the spectacle of two basic alternatives. The Heraclitian sophist approach and the Pythagorean Platonist approach. And in each major branch of philosophy, these two have their characteristic positions. In metaphysics, one side says there is no objective reality. Nothing exists, nothing is, everything is becoming. The other side says that's wrong. There are two realities. There is a true reality, which is non-material and superior to this one, and this imperfect semi-real reflection in which we live. In epistemology, one side says knowledge is impossible. It's all a matter of opinion. Man is the measure of all things. He can only say what seems to me now. That's the skeptic viewpoint. The other side says this is wrong. There is objective knowledge. And it is gained by coming into contact with the superior dimension, not with the facts of this world. And as Plato interpreted that, you recall it meant you recollect your innate ideas, the ones that you acquired from previous life, and uh, you achieve this ultimately by a mystic insight into an ineffable principle. In ethics, we have whim-worshipping subjectivism accompanied by might makes right versus the claim that, again, this is wrong, ethics is objective, but it consists of turning away from life on earth. And if you remember the quote from the Phaedo, practicing the profession of dying. And if you remember the Republic and the laws, also of ruling men by force. So we have no reality, two realities. Skepticism, mysticism. Whim-worshipping subjectivism or ascetic supernaturalism. Now, what about the possibility of a philosophy which would advocate one reality, this one, which would say that objective knowledge is possible of this world gained by logic operating on the evidence of the senses, which would say that there is such a thing as an objective ethics and that its standard is man's happiness on earth as an end in itself to be achieved by being rational here on earth. Is there such a third alternative? And you know, of course, there is. There is one philosopher who lays down for the first time the fundamental basis for a rational philosophy, one that is neither skeptic nor mystic. That philosopher is Aristotle, our subject for the next two weeks. When I began the lecture on Plato, I said that he was a great philosophic genius and on at least three counts. In his originality, in the depth and grandeur of his power of abstraction, and in his capacity for systematic integration. <clears throat> I now wish to say the same things about Aristotle. He was as original as Plato, even more so in a way, inasmuch as there were no significant precursors of Aristotle's approach to philosophy whereas Plato had the Pythagoreans to set his overall direction, and of course, many of the other pre-Socratics contributed to Plato's view. 
Before Aristotle, there was only Platonic mysticism, sophistic subjectivism, and millennia of barbarism and ignorance. Aristotle had as profound a capacity for philosophic abstraction as Plato. And if you judge by the scope of the works of his which have survived to our day, he had an even greater power for all-encompassing systematic integration. But there is still another factor here. There is one crucial difference between Plato and Aristotle. Besides Aristotle's, uh, and besides their common originality, profundity, and brilliant capacity for integration, and that is that Aristotle's philosophy in its essentials is true, which makes Aristotle a phenomenon without precedent in the history of thought. Dante, many centuries later, called Aristotle the master of them that know. And this was a simple statement of the exact truth. During the medieval period, after Aristotle's thought was rediscovered, he was characteristically referred to simply as the philosopher. And this was also an exact statement. Because if truth, I mean truth on essential fundamental issues, is a vital part of philosophy, then Aristotle's is the only philosophy. In other words, the only true philosophy, speaking of essential fundamental approach. <clears throat> Aristotelianism in this sense is philosophy. It is philosophy as a rational science versus philosophy as a rationalization for subjective whims or mystic trances. Aristotle is the philosopher. Whatever his errors, and he made many, as we'll see, his system has been the base and the foundation on which every major human achievement ever since has been built, and without which none would have been possible whether you take the development of modern science or the Industrial Revolution or the creation of the United States of America. As Ayn Rand has observed, the history of the West has in a certain way been a duel between Plato and Aristotle across all the centuries. Whenever and to whatever extent Platonism was dominant, the results on Earth were mysticism, regression, brutality, suffering. Whenever and to the extent that Aristotelianism was dominant, the results were reason, progress, freedom, human happiness. Aristotle was born in 384 BC in Stagira in Thrace, a colony in northern Greece. And he is often called the Stagirite after his birthplace. At the age of 18, he came to Athens and entered Plato's academy. Remember, the first university in the Western world. He studied under Plato for about 20 years, until Plato's death. And during most of those years, Aristotle, judged by the evidence that we have available, was a wholehearted Platonist. He believed in the world of forms. He believed in the immortality of the soul, in the wheel of birth, he believed that death was a release from the body where the soul wasn't able to go back to the perfect, unchanging world. He believed that knowledge was reminiscence, etc. And he wrote a number of Platonic-type dialogues in this period, expounding these typical Platonist themes. But Aristotle was not only a student of Plato, he was also Aristotle. 
and he came gradually to question one issue at a time, to question and to reject Plato's views, developing finally his own philosophy in fundamental opposition to Plato's. In 335 BC, he opened his own university in Athens in direct competition with Plato's, and his was called the Lyceum. And since he characteristically instructed the students by strolling back and forth with them in a covered walk called the Peripatos, he is frequently called the Peripatetic Philosopher, or the Peripatetic Philosophy means Aristotelianism. Now, during his years at the school, he wrote an incredible number of treatises for his students on all subjects then known and many which had not been known in which he started. He was one of the very few universal geniuses in human history. His works encompass physics, metaphysics, logic, epistemology, ethics, psychology, biology, rhetoric, theology, politics, aesthetics, etc. Unfortunately, today, much of his writing has been lost. Only a fraction of his work remains, and yet what we have fills 12 volumes. Now, a word on his writings, if you ever want to read them. Almost all of his works that he wrote for the general public have been lost. And what we have today is largely notes which we conjecture he made for himself and his pupils, uh, and had not intended for publication. And indeed, some people take the view, and there is a certain plausibility to it, that the works we have are written by Aristotle's students. They represent, in effect, class notes, which were later compiled and ascribed to Aristotle. In any event, the works are terse, telegrammatic, highly technical, difficult to read. Moreover, after centuries of confusion, Various people have added various bits to them, pasting them usually in the midst of a completely different subject and treatise. The order got all mixed up. And so, for instance, elements of Aristotle's early Platonism periodically pop up in a mature work, and it makes hash out of the total uh, volume. Generally, therefore, do not blame yourself if you find Aristotle difficult to untangle or read. Uh, it is not your fault, and it is not his fault. It does have the effect that Aristotle is particularly difficult to interpret in several cases because of the fragmentary, elusive nature of what we have. And in the, those cases, insofar as they're relevant to this uh, course, uh, although my presentation will be generally the standard presentation, I will indicate where other possibilities of interpretation exist. All right, let us begin with Aristotle's thought. And our first subject this evening will be Aristotle's epistemology. But as a preface to it, I must acquaint you with the essentials of his metaphysics as a base to understand his epistemology. Now, the fundamental principle of Aristotle's metaphysics I've already given you. There is one reality, this reality, the world we live in, that is contrasted with the sophistic view Aristotle believed that reality is objective, it's absolute, it is what it is, independent of consciousness, independent of the thoughts, the hopes, the wishes of anybody or everybody. <clears throat> and of course, in contrast to Plato, it is anti-supernaturalistic, it's sometimes called naturalism, a dubious word, but if you understand its meaning. 
as meaning only that there is this reality and no supernatural world, no world of forms or of universals. The arguments Aristotle offers against the sophists we'll see in due course. As for Plato's world of forms, his works contain a repeated polemic against them. I'll give you just a sample, some of his many, many arguments attacking Plato's world of forms. These arguments will help you get the flavor of Aristotle's approach to philosophy. <clears throat> well, to begin with, he says, the forms are a useless theory because they do not explain this world. This world in which we live is a world of particular things which move and change and develop. How are we going to explain the events of this world by reference to another world which is defined as static, motionless universals? And yet, this is the world we want to understand, and this is the world we need to understand, not some other world. To forms, therefore, he argues, Plato's supernatural world is a useless duplication. Down here, we have shoes, ships, and cabbages, and Plato's idea of making sense of it is to say, and besides that, there's another world of shoeness, shipness, and cabbagehood. Well, that is senseless, says Aristotle. And again, if Plato tries to reply to that by saying, well, yes, the forms do help us understand this world, because after all, this world somehow reflects the forms, Aristotle says, your answer is unintelligible. How does this world reflect the forms? All you use, Plato, he says, is empty metaphors. You say that the forms project out into space, or somehow this world imitates or shares in or participates in the forms, but it's completely unclear what the actual relationship between the two worlds is. In actual fact, you have two sundered worlds without any real connection between them. And then there is the famous third man objection, with no relationship to the third man theme. That argument goes as follows. Plato says that whenever you have two or more things which are similar to each other, then the common denominator exists separately. And the things are similar because they all share in or reflect the same one common denominator, the same one form. So that Socrates, Plato, Plotinus, for instance, are all similar, taking them as examples of men, and they must be similar because there is a manness that they all reflect. Well, says Aristotle, do Socrates and the form of man have something in common? Are they similar to each other? If not, why do we call them both by the same name and say the form of man and Socrates is a man? Obviously, there must be something similar. But if there is something common to, for instance, Socrates and the form of man, then by Plato's own principle, there must be still another form which they both reflect and in virtue of which they're both similar. So if Socrates is man one and the form of man is the second, then there must be a third man and thus the third man argument. And of course, it goes on to infinity. In other words, he claims the theory of forms leads to an infinite regress. There must be a form for what particulars have in common and a form for what particulars in the first form have in common, and so on. And this is hopeless. Now, I should say in fairness that Plato himself was the first to raise this objection in his uh, late dialogue, The Parmenides, and he had no answer to it, uh, and said that he had no answer. Uh, Aristotle simply adds, you have no answer because your theory is hopeless. Uh, his major objection to Plato's world of forms is, however, that it's self-contradictory by its very statement. 
It's a violation of logic by its very state. Because he says what Plato does is make the universal into a concrete, individual, particular thing. And this, he says, obliterates the whole distinction between the universal and the particular. What is that distinction? By a particular, we mean a self-contained, self-enclosed thing. This, this, that. A thing which exists in itself. <coughs> a universal, however, by definition, is what is common to a number of particulars. It's the set of characteristics possessed by many different instances. It therefore can't exist in itself, but only in other things, only in particulars. <coughs> to say, as Plato does, that the universal is a separate thing, existing as an entity in itself, is to make it a particular thing, which is to make the universal a non-universal, which is directly self-contradictory. <coughs> what then was Plato's errors, uh, er error? Well, said Aristotle, Plato confuses abstraction with entities, with things. We can separate the common characteristics running through a group of particulars from the differences among them. We can do that as a mental process, as a process of thought. We can form an idea of what is in common among a group of particulars, ignoring the differences. But this does not mean, says Aristotle, <coughs> that this common denominator can exist in reality apart from its particular accompaniments. It is simply an abstraction a result of selective awareness on our parts. For instance, we can look at a whole bunch of colored surfaces of all different shapes, but let us say all of the shade of red. And we can say, focus on the red and ignore the varying shapes. We can make a mental abstraction and arrive at the idea of red regardless of shape. But that doesn't mean that there can be a dimension in which color floats free without any shape, whatever. And the same is true of all abstraction. Plato thinks that because we can separate two different elements in thought, therefore they can be exist separately in reality, one in one reality and one in another. This is, says Aristotle, the fallacy of reification, R-E-I-F-I-C-A-T-I-O-N, which means literally thing-making. He makes a thing out of what is simply an abstraction. <coughs> Therefore, as far as the argument that we called Plato's argument number one in favor of the world of uh, forms, you remember the argument from the differences between universals and particulars? And Plato said they have all these differences so they must be two worlds. Aristotle says you're simply committing the fallacy of reification. It's true, for instance, that the universal is one and the particulars are many. But that is because we are focusing on the one identity running through the class, which is the same for each example. But that doesn't mean we're thinking of a single super entity, merely of the identical elements in all the otherwise differing particulars. And the same for the issue that universals are unchanging and particulars are changing. True, says Aristotle. But that merely means we are abstracting mentally away from all the changes in the particulars. We are focusing our attention mentally on the permanent, enduring element which gives them a certain character, ignoring in our thought all of the changing accompaniments. So that 
for instance, particular men change, but we can concentrate in thought on the element of them which doesn't change, the element they have in common by a process of abstraction. And therefore, it's true we can think separately one unchanging element, ignoring the many differences. That does not mean it exists by itself in another dimension. The conclusion is only particular, individual, concrete things exist in reality. They are the units of reality. What then is Aristotle's own position on universals? Well, he holds, universals are in a way distinguishable from particulars. To that extent, Plato is right. And universals are real. They are the basis of conceptual thought. They are the objects of conceptual thought. To that extent, Plato is right. But only particulars exist. That's Aristotle's essential principle. What then, how then will we interpret universals? Well, Aristotle's famous answer is universals do exist. They are real, but they exist only in particulars. There are, he says, two elements in each thing which exists. Each thing which exists is a metaphysical compound comprised of two elements. On the one hand, everything is an individual, particular, concrete. It is what Aristotle calls a this. It has something unique about it. But it also has a certain nature. And there are certain characteristics which it shares with other things on the basis of which we can classify it. It is not only a this, it is a such, a certain kind of thing. So everything is a this, such, a particular of a certain kind, an individual which belongs to a certain class. So to take simply one example, if I point to the gentleman in the front row, you are in one respect an absolutely unique, unrepeatable individual. Even if by a fantastic science fiction method, we would create another individual who was identical to you in all physical and psychological characteristics. So there was no way qualitatively of distinguishing you. You would still be you and not him. And he would still be him and not you. Individuality is an irreducible element. There's something unique about you. What it is, I'll tell you next week. I'll give you part of the answer this week, but the full answer next week. But in any event, there is something unique about you. On the other hand, obviously, you are, have many characteristics in common with other entities on the basis of which we call you human, living, etc. So there's two elements. What is sometimes called the universalizing element and the particularizing or individuating element. Now, Aristotle has his own terminology for these two elements. For the universal element, he uses the word form, borrowing from Plato. For the particular individuating element, he uses the term matter. That simply means the thisness, the uniqueness of any particular. Now, this is a very specialized Aristotelian usage of the word matter. It does not mean matter as we use the term today. I'll discuss it more fully later this evening. For now, I just want to introduce the term. You think of it in this preliminary stage as matter stands for those aspects of a thing which make it unique form those aspects of a thing it shares with other things. Now, in these terms, we can, says Aristotle, formulate a philosophic law. You never can have matter without form, nor form without matter. 
Plato and Heraclitus, each from their own perspectives, violated this law. Plato's got form without matter all over the place in his world of universals without particulars. Manness apart from individual men, etc. Heraclitus made the opposite mistake. He's got matter, but without form. There's some kind of stuff in Heraclitus' world, but it has no nature, no identity. It isn't anything. It is and it isn't, and it's constantly swimming, you see. And therefore, he's got matter without form, particulars of no nature. Now, Aristotle's principle is no matter without form, no form without matter. If something exists, it's something. In other words, it has form. And if it exists, it exists as a real particular this, a concrete here and now matter. <laughs> so much for Aristotle's attack on Plato's world of forms. Now, Aristotle's own position on universals is philosophically given the technical name Aristotelian realism. The idea being realism here means he believes universals are real. Aristotelian realism because he takes Aristotle's interpretation, namely that they exist only in particulars. Plato's view, of course, is called platonic realism uh, in the theory of universals for obvious reasons. Now I have a further preliminary metaphysical point to make. What does Aristotle have to say to the earlier pre-Socratics who had said, for instance, that this world exists, <coughs> but it is only actions, process, change, not entities, a la Heraclitus. Or that, uh, turning to the Pythagoreans, reality exists, but it really is numbers or quantities. Aristotle, in a famous work called The Categories, in which he classifies the basic types of existence, he kind of gives you an inventory of the most fundamental categories of uh, reality. In that work, he takes formally the view that the fundamental constituent of reality is the entity, the thing, the individual thing. Actions, he insists, are actions of entities, actions of things. You can't have a room filled with running unless there's something running. You can't have a room filled with digesting unless there's something doing the digesting, etc. Change, action, motion are simply names for what entities do. Wipe out the entities, you wipe out the action. And the same principle applies to quantities. You can't have a room filled with six or 20,000 because the question is six or 20,000 what? And uh, quantities, in other words, are quantities of entities. The fundamental constituents of the world are entities, which Aristotle calls, his technical term is primary beings or primary substances. That means simply entity if you encounter that phrase in Aristotle. Now there are, he says, many derivative types of existence which are not entities, such as actions or quantities or qualities, for instance, red, loud, beautiful, or relationships, for instance, ab above or below or similar to or uncle of, etc. And he mentions several other such categories. But his main point is these are all derivative forms of existence. None of these categories can exist apart from entities. If there's no entities, there's no actions, because what would be performing? No qualities, because what would be possessing? No quantities. Same question. No relations, because between or among what would those relations in here? 
So to summarize that point, this point, the world consists of primary substances, individual entities, each a particular with a certain nature, engaged in various actions, possessing various qualities, bearing certain relationships to each other. In other words, reality is the world of common sense. It is the everyday world we live in. It and you are not a reflection, or a flux, or a contradiction, or a dream, or a nothing, or a string of essences polluted by empty space. Reality is this world as it appears to human senses. This is the world we want to know and understand. Now, given this preliminary metaphysical sketch, and before we proceed to look at Aristotle's epistemology, let's identify one cardinal metaphysical principle implicit in what I've said so far, although not explicitly identified by Aristotle himself. Aristotle is the true author of the principle of the primacy of existence, as against the principle of the primacy of consciousness. Now, for those of you unfamiliar with this distinction, I will have to interrupt to explain briefly here, because otherwise you cannot appreciate the significance of Aristotle's philosophy. The primacy of existence is the view that reality, to put it colloquially, comes first. It is the metaphysical primary. Reality is what it is, independent of the content or actions of any consciousness. It is the irreducible primary which sets the terms for consciousness. And consciousness is simply a man's or an animal's faculty for perceiving, grasping, identifying, coming to know the facts of reality. On the primacy of existence view, consciousness has no power to alter the facts of reality. And no matter how much it wishes, hopes, fears, believes, opines, etc., it cannot magically change reality. Facts are what they are, independent of consciousness. Now, the opposite view is called the primacy of consciousness. And this is the view that consciousness in some form comes first. It is the metaphysical primary, the irreducible entity, which sets the terms for reality. And reality is somehow an offshoot or derivative or byproduct of the activities or content of consciousness. On this view, consciousness in effect has magical powers. It has the power to produce or shape reality. Facts are not what they are, but rather they are whatever the ruling consciousness chooses them to be. Now, if you want a simple daily example of the primacy of consciousness, any act of evasion implies it. You come into your uh, bedroom after a day at work and you find your wife in another man's arms. <coughs> and you find this a shattering experience for reasons I needn't elaborate. <laughs> you don't want it to be true, so let us say you evade. You blank it out, you simply push it out of your mind. What is your premise? This is too horrible to be real. If I don't see it, it won't exist. What is the implication? My consciousness controls reality. Facts are whatever I want them to be. That is the primacy of consciousness in homey daily action. <coughs> Now, the point here is that in terms of philosophic approach, every fundamental approach opposed to Aristotle's represents the primary primacy of consciousness, either explicitly and nakedly, as was primarily the case in the modern post-Kantian world, 
or else implicitly and indirectly, as was true largely in the ancient world. But if you want an explicit example of primacy of consciousness in the ancient world, the sophists would be an example of it. Man's arbitrary feelings and opinions are the measure of all things, according to them. Well, what does that mean? means that truth or facts are whatever any individual arbitrarily chooses them to be. His feelings and opinions, the content of his consciousness is omnipotent, for him of course. It shapes reality, which somehow snaps into line and becomes for him whatever his consciousness dictates. Now that is the primacy of consciousness on an individual level. Each individual consciousness has primacy over existence. And in this respect, all subjectivism, all skepticism represents the primacy of consciousness. <clears throat> or consider Platonism. Now here the primacy of consciousness is in indirect, but nevertheless real. If the father of the primacy of existence is Aristotle, then the most influential father of the primacy of consciousness is Plato. What is his world of forms, to take just one point? What are they? Well, as Aristotle was the first to observe, the forms are actually abstractions. They are phenomena pertaining to man's method of organizing and grasping the facts uh, given to him by his senses. But Plato erects them into separate entities which shape and control this world, which means he makes this world a reflection of phenomena of consciousness. Now, this is the primacy of consciousness by implication. I say by implication because Plato himself did not regard the forms, as you know, as having any connection essentially to consciousness. He thought of them as special non-conscious entities. But in actual fact, abstractions is all that they are. And in this way, his philosophy reduces by implication to the primacy of consciousness. Or take Plato's myth of the demiurge. How do we account for order in this world, says Plato? Why does the world have the law and order it does? the physical world. And his answer is, well, a soul, a consciousness, wandered by and desired order and perfection and thereby shaped the reality, uh, shaped the physical world in accordance with its wishes. That's the primacy of consciousness. Law and order in the physical world are not irreducible natural facts, but the resultant of the operations of a supernatural consciousness. Or consider Plato's very approach to philosophy at the deepest level and at the outset. What is his starting point? Well, his starting point is the demands of man's method of acquiring knowledge. Plato's starting point, if you remember my lecture a few weeks ago, is the axiom in effect is man must know. Knowledge must be real. Conceptual knowledge must be real. Now he goes on, what must reality be if it is to satisfy, fulfill, live up to man's need of a certain kind of knowledge? Well, that is, as an approach, the primacy of consciousness, again by implication. Because the starting point is, consciousness needs something. It wants something. It has to have something, a certain kind of knowledge in this case. Therefore, reality must have such and such a nature. That implies that reality is determined by man's method of knowing. That is the primacy of consciousness. Now, Aristotle is the exact opposite of Plato on all these points. Not only does he dispose of Plato's forms and demiurges and supernatural consciousnesses of all sorts, he refuses to endorse Plato's approach to the whole subject of philosophy. 
according to Aristotle, the question you start with is not, what must reality be in order to make it possible for us to acquire knowledge of it? But simply, what, as a matter of fact, is reality? And then, given that it is that way, why, by what processes are we able to acquire knowledge of it? First comes reality, and then, and on the basis of its nature, we turn to the question, what processes of knowledge are suitable for acquiring knowledge of such a reality? Now, my lecture title uh, on the brochure for this lecture is A Revolution, the Birth of Reason. But the metaphysical meaning of this is actually the birth of reality. And I mean here, of course, of the discovery of reality. Because in this profound sense, it was Aristotle who first discovered the existence and the primacy of reality. All the others in their various ways engage in disconnected, free-floating theorizing. They come at some point to a contradiction, to some conclusion, in conflict with the facts of reality as reported by our senses, and they proceed to say, down with reality. Or rather, they don't put it that way. They say, this isn't reality. This is simply appearances. True reality is the world that lives up to our theories. Now, Aristotle refuses to endorse any dichotomy between reality and appearance. Reality is what we observe, and any theories which go counter to it are simply wrong. Aristotle's most characteristic attitude comes across when he deals, for instance, with the theories of various pre-Socratics, you know, the kind that says there is no permanence, or there is no change, or whatever it happens to be. And it takes some equally obvious fact and simply say it can't be. You can't walk across a room. Zeno gives whole pages of arguments as to why you can't do it. And Aristotle's typical procedure is he conscientiously presents their arguments, and then he says matter-of-factly, but we see these things. They are obvious. They are facts. And facts are facts. And then, of course, since he's a great philosopher, he proceeds to make mincemeat of the arguments that led to the denial of those facts. In this sense, he is preeminently the realist in philosophy. That's why I had to start with the rudiments of his metaphysics, of his own view of reality, and only now can proceed to his epistemology. Now, I should mention that Aristotle is not a fully consistent representative of the primacy of existence. There is always a vestigial, contradictory, platonic element in him to the very end of his days. But, uh, and this you need to know for historical accuracy, and I'll point out occasional touches in these lectures. But that is unimportant to him qua Aristotelian, which is our primary concern in these lectures. All right, now let's turn to Aristotle's epistemology systematically. And the first question that we ask is, what do we begin with as far as knowledge is concerned? What legacy do we have at birth cognitively? And Aristotle's answer to that question is very simple. Nothing. We have no innate ideas. To know reality, you have to come in contact with it. There is no life prior to this one. At birth, therefore, we are, he says in a famous simile, like a blank tablet, a tabula rasa, T-A-B-U-L-A-R-A-S-A, which is a term that simply means a blank slate. It has no connection to horticulture, and no relation to tubular roses. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
All knowledge, says Aristotle, must start with sense experience. Now this viewpoint is often called empiricism and contrasted with rationalism. Empiricism in this sense is the view that all knowledge is based on and derived from the, the evidence of the senses. In other words, that there is no innate cognitive content. Now, this definition as I've just given it, if you understand it in that sense of the term, it's fair to say that Aristotle is an empiricist in contrast to a rationalist. However, since the 18th century, since the time of David Hume, empiricism, for reasons we will see, became synonymous with subjectivism and skepticism of every variety. It became the view that we can acquire knowledge only by the senses and there is no such faculty as reason at all. Now, in that sense of the term, Aristotle is not an empiricist any more than he's a rationalist. He is simply rational, that is to say an Aristotelian. But if you use empiricism in its pre-Humean sense, you can call Aristotle an empiricist. And his philosophy is the first influential statement in history of this allegedly obvious fact that knowledge begins with the evidence of the senses. Knowledge for Aristotle is looking out to discover the facts of the world, not introspecting, not reasoning from constructs. And if you ever reach an allegedly rational conclusion which contradicts the evidence of the senses, you simply know you've made a mistake somewhere. All theories have to take their point of departure from the facts. You cannot write off the evidence of the senses as a deception because that's where knowledge begins. The senses in a word are valid. They give us an awareness of reality as it is. Now, as one point in his defense of the senses, Aristotle was the first influential philosopher to say, in regard to illusions, that we must make a clear distinction between what the senses contribute and the interpretation supplied by the mind. And so, you know, if you look at a bent stick in water, a stick that's actually straight but appears bent, all the skeptics across the centuries moan. These are the lesser skeptics. Um, <laughs> Oh, you see, our senses deceive us because it looks bent and it's really straight. Aristotle says the senses do not deceive you. They give you the actual evidence of the facts. The senses cannot deceive you. The error comes in the conclusion that you make and the theory you put forth to interpret the data. In your saying that the cause of it is that the stick actually bends in the water rather than some other explanation. But don't blame the senses for your confused or erroneous intellectual interpretations. That is an Aristotelian point in defense of the senses. Now, as to the deeper questions about the senses, the argument of the sophists that the senses are across the board invalid because they distort by their very nature, I have to postpone Aristotle's answer until next week to that because you need to know more of his fundamental philosophy to understand his answer. Let's assume for now the senses are valid. The senses, however, are simply the beginning of knowledge. We must go on from there. And to this extent, says Aristotle, Plato was absolutely right. We must come to grasp universals, not merely sense particulars. We have to form concepts. We have to grasp common denominators in order to be able to classify and systematize our percepts and thereby make sense of the world. Plato, however, was wrong in his view of the process by which this is done. Remember, Plato thought that you had to have concepts in advance of coming in contact with particulars in order to be able to know how to group particulars. That was the argument I presented as argument three, the argument from the order of knowledge. 
Aristotle says, this is all wrong. Concepts, he says, can be grasped by a process of abstraction from particulars without any antecedent knowledge. And therefore, first you know particulars, and only subsequently do you know concepts. Nor do you need concepts in order to get them, as Plato claimed. The process, he says, is simple. Point A, you start with sense experience. Now, he says, in some cases, the living creature simply doesn't have the capacity to retain sense data, in which case it never gets any farther. It sees one sense datum and then it's gone and it sees the next one and that's all. Salmon are supposed to be like that. I don't know how anybody would know, but they're supposed to be like that. <laughs> but he says in some living creatures, and certainly in men, they are able to remember past sense experiences. They have memory. They can retain their persons. And thirdly, in the case of man and man alone, they have not only sense and memory, but a third capacity. After a number of similar percepts are repeated, a man has the ability to detect common denominators among them. He has the ability to abstract, to concentrate selectively on the common denominators, ignoring the differences. And that is how we form concepts. We see one example of green, and another, and another, and at a certain point, if you're not too retarded, you get the message that there's something similar in those instances. Even if their shapes and locations and sizes differ, you focus in on the similar element and you form the concept green, and so on for all others. We don't need to know concepts in advance. At the outset, we are simply, said Aristotle, by bombarded by sensory chaos. And at the beginning, we don't know. When the green thing hits us, we haven't a clue what it is. It's just something. We haven't any idea what. And if we could take this Aristotelian baby and somehow conduct a philosophic discussion with him and ask him, what is this? He'd say, I'm the faintest clue. <laughs> Whereas if you took a Platonist baby and asked him, he'd say, well, I don't know right yet, but I'm shortly going to know that it's green and it comes under color and so on and so on. Because I knew it all once, I just forgot it. <clears throat> so we don't need all that. All we have to postulate, says Aristotle, is the basic ability to be able to recognize similarities when they hit you in the face and to grasp them when they confront you and then abstract and ignore the differences. Every time we do so, we bring order into a certain range of our percepts. We form classifications by detecting identities among differences. And now if you ask Aristotle, but why? How come human beings have this kind of capacity? Aristotle answers, the same answer as to why they have the senses or why they have memory. It is simply a fact. It is not a fact that philosophers should make mystical or try and explain away. His famous line in this respect is, quote, the soul is so constituted as to be capable of this process, unquote, and he proceeds about his business. Facts are facts and they are not to be made mythology. Once, of course, you have now formed a given concept that permits you to recognize and identify new instances of it when you encounter them. So the next time a little green thing comes by, you can now say, aha, I know what that is, that is green. And this process, of course, continues on progressively more abstract uh, levels. When you abstract from your abstractions, so you get green and red and so on, and then color, or man and animal and so on, and then living thing or table, chair, and so on, and then furniture. And you go still wider. From furniture and art, for instance, you might abstract man-made object. 
and uh, uh, from rocks and uh, tomatoes and mountains, you might abstract natural objects. And by combining man-made and natural together, you get the widest, namely thing, primary substance. And in the other areas, you'd get action, quality, quantity, relationship. In other words, the categories, as he called them, are the widest universals. They're the climax at the end of the abstracting process. Uh, they're the widest abstractions in any area. In other words, we build up our conceptual apparatus by a process of successive abstraction, which enables us to classify facts that we observe, bring order out of the sensory chaos, identify facts now conceptual. So instead of being bombarded with unintelligible shapes and colors and sounds, we say, a man just died, a piece of ice just melted, etc. Now, I insert here parenthetically Aristotle's answer to Plato on the question of perfection, because it's relevant. Uh, it can be easily discussed in connection with his view of abstraction. Remember argument, I think it was two as I gave it to you. We never encounter the perfect in this world, and therefore we must have got it from another world, our knowledge of it. E.g., all the beds in this world have something wrong with them. For instance, a lump. Well, Aristotle says, Leaving aside every other argument you could use, why can't you just abstract away from the lump? Why can't you just find from, the, from your observations what is a bed and what is its function? And then grasp, okay, it has a lump, I'll ignore that. And say a perfect bed would be a bed just like this, but without the lump. Why did you have to meet it in another dimension? <laughs> and the same thing, of course, is true of lines which have a wiggle even if it were true that every line has a wiggle. Human beings have the power of abstracting away from the wiggles. And as to Plato's view that, well, but uh, for instance, there is no triangle in this world because a triangle is straight lines and lines are only one dimensional and only the three dimensional exists in this world and therefore we must have encountered the one dimensional in another dimension. <laughs> we must have encountered the one dimensional in the fourth dimension. Uh, Aristotle says that's false. The one-dimensional does exist in this world, but it doesn't exist apart from the other two dimensions. But the way to find it is simply focus selectively. Take any surface and ignore its extension and just focus on the uh, extension in one dimension. And there is the real one-dimensional, exactly as real as color is real. Only it doesn't exist floating free, but neither does color. So why do we need another dimension for that? In other words, if you can abstract, you can abstract. Now then, let's continue. <clears throat> we've let us suppose we have acquired a certain conceptual apparatus. We're able to discover a host of particular facts. Is this the end of knowledge or science? No, says Aristotle, that's actually just the beginning. <clears throat> because the goal of knowledge, he says, is to understand to explain, to find out why things happen as they do, to see their necessity. The goal of science, says Aristotle, is to reach the stage where you would be amazed if anything were different than the way it was. Now, when you start and you're ignorant, everything is a big surprise to you. You're amazed that the sum of the angles of a triangle is 180 degrees, or that all men are mortal, etc. You can't figure out why that is. By the time you acquire enough knowledge of geometry or mathematics uh, or biology, you would be amazed if anything else took place. And that, says Aristotle, is the goal. 
In other words, to get to the stage where you know the two crucial things, as he puts it, the that and the why. The facts and the causes which make them what they are, the causes that explain them. Well, but that raises the question, what will you take as an explanation? What is the cause of a thing's having the characteristics and behavior that it does? <clears throat> so we have to look at Aristotle's theory of explanation, which in turn depends upon his metaphysics. Before we can look for causes, we have to know what, in fact, are the causes of the actions of things. What makes things act as they do? For instance, if you believe in an all-powerful God as the source of everything, you will then say explanation must be theological. It must be this happened because God willed it. That would be the Christian viewpoint. Or, if with Plato you believe that the form of the good inspires everything and it's the ultimate cause, then your explanation will have to be in terms of the striving of everything for the form of the good. Now, since Aristotle denies any supernatural realm, his viewpoint is things act as they do because of what they are, because of their nature, because of the kinds of things they actually are in reality. Why does this particular thing boil when you raise it to a certain temperature? Because, for instance, it's water, not sand. Why does this one explode? Because it's gunpowder, not paper. Why does this one fly? Because it's a bird, not a teaspoon. In other words, what a thing basically or essentially is determines its characteristics and its behavior. And to explain any particular thing, therefore, we must know to what class does it belong? What are its essential characteristics? And thus we reach the question, how will we discover the essential characteristics, the essence of each class of things? How will we find out what makes water water? Or what makes a man a man? What methodology will we take to answer these questions and thereby tell us how to find the essence of each class and thereby explain all the other characteristics? Well, by asking how to find the essence, we have reached another theory of Aristotle's, his theory of definition. Because Aristotle's definition of definition is a definition is the statement of the essence of a class. In other words, it is the statement of those fundamental characteristics which make the class what it is and differentiate it from all other types of thing in the universe. For Aristotle, it is urgent, vital, crucial to discover correct definitions of every concept. Because these definitions tell you the essence of something, which therefore permits you to understand why it behaves as it does. Well then, how do you arrive at correct definitions? Now Aristotle wrote a great deal on this subject. He had many crucial things to say. This evening, I can just give you a brief sample. For instance, he said, all definitions must have a certain structure. The structure must consist of two parts. Suppose, for instance, you want to define man. First, you must state the general kind of thing he is. He is an animal. And that gives you the basic, the fundamental kind of thing he is. What you've done then is place man in a wider general class. 
And that class is known as the genus, G-E-N-U-S, from which we get our word general. Or what is a triangle? It is a plain figure. What is a church? It is a building. What is capitalism? It is a political system, etc. Now, but obviously, the genus is not enough because there are other members of the same genus. And uh, there are other types of plain figure, other types of building, etc. Therefore, we have to add a further element specifying how the thing we're defining differs from everything else within the genus. Man, for instance, we say is an animal with the capacity to reason. And that's what distinguishes him from the apes and uh, the bumblebees. A triangle is a plane figure, but it's bounded by three straight lines, as against circles and squares, and so on. Now, the phrase which represents what's distinctive uh, within the genus is called the differentia, the differentia, from which we get our word differentiate. Now, if you have these two, and if you have chosen them correctly, says Aristotle, you must have reached the essence of the class. The genus guarantees that you are stating the basic fundamental kind of thing it is. The differentia guarantees that you've stated something that's true only of this class, that you've differentiated it from all others. So the two together must have given you the essence of the class. It must have told you what it is, in a fundamental way, distinct from all other classes. Now, I stress that it is important to choose the correct genus and differentia. I could say, a cigarette is a pig with wings. I've given a genus and a differentia of sorts, but that is hardly uh, a valid definition, so a whole series of further rules is required. Aristotle goes into complex, specific, very valuable detail on this question. I will mention simply two of his many rules to give you an idea of the nature of his view and achievement. To begin with, he says, your definition must be commensurate. C-O-M-M-E-N-S-U-R-A-T-E. Commensurate with the class you are defining. In other words, it must be true only of members of the class and of all of those members. So you can go wrong in two ways on this rule. Either your genus might be too wide or it might be, your definition rather, might be too wide or too narrow. Take in too much territory or not enough. So for instance, suppose I were to say, <coughs> man is a member of reality. Well, as a definition, that obviously takes in everything and therefore doesn't define man. Now, it is not much better to say man is a social animal. By this same count, what about ants? Or to say man is a featherless biped, you know, a, a two-legged thing which has no feathers, which is how some Platonists once defined man. And according to the legend, what a group of Aristotelians passed by and threw a plucked chicken uh, into their midst. <coughs> to indicate that this definition is too wide. It takes in too much territory. It can't be the essence which makes man, man. And on the other side, the too narrow type is all around us today, too. If I say man is an American living in the 20th century, that's obviously too narrow. Or man is an Aryan, the Nazi working definition of man. Or man is the entity who feels compassionate, benevolent, self-sacrificial love for the suffering which is the newspaper editorialist definition of man. That is all too narrow. Does not take in all members of the species. Definitions must be commensurate. 
But that's not enough. Go on to one more rule. It is not enough for the definition to be commensurate. <coughs> In addition, the definition must state the fundamental characteristics of the class to be defined. Now, there are such things as commensurate but derivative characteristics. That is, characteristics true of all and only of members of a certain class, but which are not basic, which are results of something deeper which is basic. For instance, suppose I say man is the being, assuming he's not damaged, with the capacity to talk, or the being with a sense of humor. Now, those qualities he has because he has reason, and therefore they cannot validly be definitional of man. They are effects of his essence. They are not his essence. Or if I say a triangle is the plane figure whose angle sum equals 180 degrees, it's true. It's true only of triangles, but it is not the definition of triangle because it can be explained, the 180 degree angle sum, by reference to the structure of a triangle combined with the axioms of geometry. Or if I say capitalism is a system which is highly productive, prosperous, and brings about the greatest happiness, the greatest number. This, as you know from objectivism, is true of capitalism and only of capitalism, but that is not what is the essence of capitalism, simply its consequence. That last example, needless to say, is not Aristotle's. <coughs> Consequently, says Aristotle, we must make a firm distinction between the essence, the fundamental commensurate characteristics, <coughs> versus the derivative characteristics. Now, these derivative characteristics Aristotle calls by the technical term properties. Properties. That's his technical use of the term. And he means by property <coughs> those commensurate characteristics which are not fundamental, which are simply results or effects of the essence of the class. And using his essence property terms, what we do when we want to understand a fact is learn the connection between the essence of things and their properties. That's simply a reformulation of the point I made a few minutes ago, that the nature of a thing determines its characteristics and behavior. <coughs> Therefore, in our definition, says Aristotle, we must keep a firm line between causes and effects, between essences and properties. If we don't, if we start including properties in our definitions and thus lose the distinction between essence and property, we will never be able to explain the properties uh, and we will simply get hopelessly confused. All right, let's go on. Suppose we know how to formulate correct definitions. We know how to state the essence of some class. We wanted to know that, we said, because the essence of a class determines its properties, determines its behavior. Things of the same essence will behave the same way. Same nature, same properties. There are, in a word, and I'm introducing a new topic now, but obviously related, there are general laws in reality governing how things behave. And these laws, according to Aristotle, always take one form. A thing of such and such a nature has such and such properties. A thing of such and such an essence behaves in such and such a way. If we could discover these general laws, we could then explain the initial observations that we made at the outset. We observe, for instance, that Socrates is mortal. But if we can grasp the nature of man and then say, look, 
all things of this essence, all men are mortal, and Socrates is a man, we would thereby have explained the fact of his mortality. And therefore, Aristotle's theory of explanation, to put it in a mouthful, but this is the essence of it, is <coughs> explanation consists of seeing the particular events we observe as instances of a general principle which relates the nature of some class to its mode of action. That's the essence of Aristotle's theory. To understand any particular fact or observation, we must subsume it under general principles. You want me to repeat that, I trust? Explanation consists in seeing the particular events we observe as instances of a general principle. A principle which relates the nature of a class to its mode of action. Now, uh, you should see here that there is an obvious influence of Plato on Aristotle on this point. Because this is derived in a certain way from Plato's divided line. You remember when you get to stage three of the divided line and reach the forms, the universals, they illuminate according to Plato and make intelligible the particulars? Well, this is actually the same point that Plato made there, that the general explains the particular, but now stated in a literal scientific fashion, stripped of metaphor and mysticism. But Plato here gets credit for the insight, even if buried in mystical framework. Now the question goes, uh, how do we discover these general principles? All men are mortal. Or to vary the example, all hot stoves, assuming they're hot enough, burn you, assuming you keep your fingers close enough to them long enough. <coughs> and so on. You don't observe general principles, not the principles. And yet they're indispensable to explain what we do observe. All we observe are particulars. There must then, says Aristotle, be a process of acquiring the knowledge of the general principle by observing the particular facts. And this process he calls induction. Epagoge in Greek. Induction. And that is defined as the process of passing in thought from particulars to a general principle. And it is, according to Aristotle, a fundamental procedure of human knowledge because it is the ultimate source of all of our general principles. General principles are not reached by a recollection of another dimension, but by generalization from particulars that we actually observe. And therefore, all the principles <coughs> by which we explain particulars must, says Aristotle, come ultimately from generalizing from the particulars that we observe. And therefore, there's an exact parallel between concept formation and the arriving at general laws. We go from percepts to concepts or from individual facts to general laws. In both cases, not by recollection, anamnesis, or mysticism, but by being able to abstract. How can we do this? Quote, the soul is so constituted as to be capable of this process, unquote. Now, Aristotle wrote very little about induction. <coughs> he was the first, if we leave aside certain hints from Socrates and Plato, he was the first officially to recognize that it was indispensable to human knowledge, but uh, he had very little to say about it, and I should add for accuracy that like all the Greeks, he had a primitive concept of induction. 
Uh, he had what's called induction by simple enumeration, which is induction simply by enumerating instances. You see man one die, man two, man three, and after a while you say, well, I guess all men must be mortal. Aristotle had no knowledge, none of the Greeks did, nor did the medievals, of the experimental methods that are a modern discovery. He could, did not know about controlled experimentation, uh, whereby on a few instances you could, with assurance, validate a general law. And consequently, he did not think that by induction alone you could prove the truth of a law. Because after all, he was aware you might have struck a coincidence. How do you know that the instances you observed are really representative of a general principle? Or perhaps there was a hidden necessary condition concealed from you which won't always operate and which will therefore invalidate your generalization. And therefore, in Aristotle's opinion, <coughs> lacking the more sophisticated modern concepts of induction, he thought the best you could get by induction was the suggestion of a law which you then had to validate by some other means. In this sense, of course, his epistemology is deficient. And I mention this for the record. However, his basic view of the indispensability of induction is uh, correct. But it does require supplementing with the theory of the rules of validating induction. Now, I do not wish to suggest that the modern experimental method is a full answer to that question. It is a partial lead. The full answer to that question awaits uh, uh, formulation. It has never yet in writing been presented. All right, let's assume now that we have arrived at general laws by induction and have validated them. Now uh, we can take our laws and apply them to new particular cases, predicting what will happen in advance because we know the laws, explaining what we observe because we know the laws. We can now go in the opposite direction. Starting from Socrates, Plato, Plotinus, and a number of other individual men, we induced to reach the conclusion all men are mortal. Now we can turn around and we encounter Joe Glutz and say, all men are mortal. Joe Glutz is a man, therefore, even though he hasn't died, I know Joe Glutz will be mortal too. And that process of starting with the general principle and applying it to a particular case is, of course, deduction. And therefore, knowledge for Aristotle is the integrated employment of induction and deduction. Induction gives you the basic general laws. Deduction uses these laws to explain and understand particular instances. And of course, you do not stop uh, with your first inductions. You don't stop with uh, all men are mortal or all hot stoves burn, any more than on the level of concept formation. You stop with green, red, and bananas. You go on again to ask, why is this general law so? And says Aristotle again, by a process of broader induction, you find a more general law from which you can deduce the law that you first arrived at by induction. So, for instance, we first arrive by induction at the conclusion that all men are mortal, just by observing instances. Now, by taking a wider field of vision, we observe that carrots, bumblebees, pigs, and pussycats are mortal. And we induce all living things are mortal. Now, we say to ourselves, all living things are mortal, and man is a living thing, therefore man must be mortal. And we have now deduced and thus explained 
a law that we originally arrived at simply by induction. And of course, it continues on the process. The process of knowledge, therefore, is a systematic, systematic integrated employment of induction and deduction, going progressively deeper into the laws of reality, finding more and more basic ones by wider and wider inductions, each new induction permitting you to deduce the preceding level, and so on. More and more of reality being explained at each step, so your laws are organized into a systematic chain of deductions. Now, if Aristotle had little to say uh, about induction, he had a great deal to say about deduction. And I want to look very briefly at his views of deduction because that is what wins for him the title of the father of logic, in other words, of deductive logic. For the first time in human history, he asks this question, what do we actually do when we defend a conclusion by stating premises? What is the actual structure of human reasoning when we engage in deduction? Now let's take the simple example. All men are mortal. Socrates is a man. Those are our premises. And on their basis, we come to the conclusion, therefore, uh, Socrates is mortal. Now our conclusion, says Aristotle, taking this example, our conclusion, Socrates is mortal, relates two terms. Socrates is one, mortality is another. Our conclusion says there is a connection between the, those two. Socrates is mortal. Somehow our premises justify this conclusion. But how? Well, says Aristotle, observe that there is a third term besides Socrates and mortal, which appears in the argument, namely the term man. It appears in each premise. In one case, it's linked to the term Socrates, when we say Socrates is a man. In the other premise, it's linked to the term mortal, when we say men are mortal. What we do, says Aristotle, in reasoning, is discover such a linking term, what he calls the middle term, which relates the two terms that we connect in the conclusion. Reasoning, therefore, is really the discovery of a middle term connecting two others. And therefore, every argument, he says, will have three terms. The subject of the conclusion, in the example I gave you, if the conclusion is Socrates is mortal, the subject will be Socrates, and that was called by later logicians the minor term. The predicate of the conclusion, in this case mortality, that's called the major term and the linking or middle term, which occurs once in each premise but not in the conclusion, and that's called the middle term. That's the term which enables us to ground the connection in the conclusion. Now, this type of reasoning Aristotle himself discovered and defined from scratch, and this is the type of argument he called a syllogism. A syllogism. Now, I will give you not his, but a modern, but legitimate definition of syllogism. A syllogism is a deductive argument with two premises. It contains only three terms, two of which are linked in the conclusion, as a result of the linking of each of them with the third or middle term in the premises. Too fast? A deductive argument with two premises containing only three terms 
two of which are linked in the conclusion as a result of the linking of each of them with the third or middle term in the premises. Reasoning, therefore, and explanation, and ultimately science, according to Aristotle, is always a quest for the right middle term, the term that explains and proves the conclusion. To give an example out of objectivism, suppose you want to show that price controls are wrong. One term is price controls, one is wrong. What is the middle term that explains and proves? The answer would be, in effect, compulsion. And then you say price controls are a form of compulsion. Compulsion is wrong, therefore price controls are wrong. And of course you would continue. Why is compulsion wrong? What is the middle term between compulsion and wrong? Well, you, if you take objectivist philosophy, you say compulsion is anti-mind. And the anti-mind is wrong, therefore compulsion is wrong, and so on. <coughs> now, the middle term does not always function correctly. For instance, pigs are mortal. Men are mortal, therefore men are pigs. <laughs> I have a middle term, namely mortal, but it certainly failed in its function. Or communists are atheists. You are an atheist, therefore you are a communist. We have three terms, but the conclusion doesn't follow. So when does it and when doesn't it? This question Aristotle answered exhaustively for every possible type of syllogism. And there is, if I remember correctly, 256 varieties. <coughs> and that means he had to classify all the types there are. The work in which he did this is the prior analytics. He had to define all the types of premises because it makes a big difference whether you say all men are mortal or simply some men are geniuses. If you have an argument with some, all your reasoning is affected thereby. And it makes a difference where the middle term is placed. Is it the subject of a premise or the predicate, etc.? He had to define, therefore, all sorts of fallacies which could be committed in reasoning syllogistically. This was the first time any of this was ever dreamed of being done. He formalized, systematized the rules of reasoning. His later followers proceeded to give a name, particularly in the medieval period, to every valid type of syllogism. And they got to be so familiar with them that as soon as somebody uttered an argument, they'd call out its, the logical name for that particular type of syllogism. Uh, and they had a certain reason for the name, but I won't take the time for it. But for instance, all men are mortal. Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal, is Barbara. And therefore, Whenever uh, they had such an argument, somebody would call out Barbara, and there's also Dario and Fizio and Bramteria, etc. Now, Aristotle didn't go that far. That was for his uh, scholastic followers. But uh, the point is, he is the first man ever to think about the thinking process and define its rules. He did not say the last word on uh, this or, indeed, any other subject. I take that back. On certain subjects, he said the last word. Uh, there are other types of deductive argument besides syllogisms. But Aristotle is nevertheless correct that the syllogism is the essential deductive argument. And thus Aristotle actually carved out the entire subject of logic for the first time. He identified the most common and crucial type of reasoning. He defined for the first time what it means to prove something, to prove it or explain it objectively.
on the basis of facts. And that was the sense I meant when I said the birth of reason. It means specifically the birth of reason. Reason as an explicit, conscious, defined, objective method. In that sense, he is the father of reason and logic. Let us take our break here. <clears throat> now, we took the break on the topic of proof, and I want to continue and make one other point. <clears throat> Aristotle observed that it is not valid to demand a proof of everything. Because, he said, what does proof consist of? Proof is the demonstration of a proposition by inference from premises. Well, suppose you have done that and somebody says to you, how do you know your premises are true? You have to know that the premises are true in order to establish the conclusion. Give me some proof of your premises. Well, suppose you give a proof and he says, ah, but your proof itself has premises. And what is the proof of those? And so on. Now, says Aristotle, there cannot be an infinite regress. Obviously, there must be starting points for all human knowledge. Basic axioms. The alternative would be knowledge is impossible. Either we'd have to have an infinite regress, which is impossible, or our starting points would have to be arbitrary, in which case our conclusions would be equally arbitrary. If uh, we're, there were not axioms which we could know to be true without the need of uh, proof, all knowledge would be hypothetical. It would be of the form, if this, then, but we'd never know whether anything really was true. And that would, of course, be a contradiction. We'd be in the position of saying, we have reached the knowledge that there is no knowledge. There must, therefore, be basic self-evident truths. Beginnings of knowledge. And Aristotle calls these the archai. A-R-C-H-A-I, that's the Greek for beginning, or first principle, in the singular A-R-C-H-E. These are at the foundation of human knowledge. Of these, it is improper to ask for proof, because they are the ultimate foundation of everything else. All proof consists of deriving from these archai their consequences. Deny them, and you wipe out the very concept of proof. Quote, to demand a proof of everything, I'm quoting Aristotle, argues want of education, unquote. <laughs> By which standard there are many uneducated people today, not excluding many PhDs. But, said Aristotle, we must very, very carefully specify what we are entitled to regard as a self-evident axiom and what we are not. He wrote a great deal on this subject, the types of axioms, how they come to be known, at what point in time different ones come to be known, and so on. Simply can't go into this material because of its length. You could give a whole lecture on Aristotle's theory of axioms. But just a few points. First, he distinguished two general types of axioms. Those at the base of just one science or one branch of knowledge. For instance, if equals be added to equals, the results will be equal, which is a geometrical or a broader, a mathematical axiom. And on the other hand, the universal axioms, the axioms which you have to know to know anything. For instance, the laws of logic to which we'll return in a moment. <clears throat> now, Aristotle's view is that in each science, there are special axioms unique to it, basic laws of its particular genus or area of study. 
The ultimate goal of a science, since its purpose is to understand, is to find these ultimate first principles. You induce and induce and induce deeper and deeper, but there can be no infinite regress. It's a finite universe. Consequently, says Aristotle, in each science we must ultimately reach its basic laws. When you reach these, you will grasp them to be self-intelligible. They will not require explanation or proof by reference to anything outside of themselves. Just as in mathematics, when you finally, for instance, reach a straight line as the shortest distance between two points, that is self-luminous, self-intelligible, and from it, in conjunction with others like it, you can deduce all the geometric theorems. Well, he thinks the equivalent will take place in all subjects. And thus, we reach actually the ultimate axioms at the end of our quest so that the thing which is first in reality is the last in the order of our coming to discover it. And then, once we have reached this first principle, we turn around and travel backwards, deducing from it all of the laws and facts we earlier had reached by observation and induction. Now you see here the obvious influence of Plato's divided line. You travel up the line, hit the top, and turn around and deduce what you formerly had not arrived at deductively. But there are two crucial differences in Aristotle's version from Plato's. To begin with, the basic axioms are, and basic definitions I should say, the basic axioms and definitions are, for Aristotle, abstracted ultimately from sense experience and must be objectively defined. It is not a mystical goodness that you reach at the end. And secondly, Aristotle insists there is no one ultimate principle from which every subject is deducible. After all, as the father of logic, he knows something about the structure of reasoning. And he says you cannot have a term in your conclusion which did not appear in your premises. And therefore, if you want a mathematical conclusion, you have to have specifically mathematical premises. If you want a conclusion in the realm of physics, then your premises have to contain terms in the realm of physics, and so for psychology, etc. Therefore, Plato's goal of one all-encompassing insight from which everything flows is simply a myth. There are distinct sciences, each with its own basic premises, and the goal of each science is to grasp these, which, as I say, comes only at the end. Um, uh, thus, at least many of them come only at the end, the ones I've been referring to. There are many types of axioms which I won't here go into. Now, in this theory, Aristotle carved out for the first time the idea of a specific science. Prior to his time, there was only Sophia, or wisdom. You uh, want to know anything? You come under the lover of Sophia. Aristotle is therefore not only the father of logic, but of science, that is to say, of the very idea of a specific science, both from the aspect of a specific delimited subject matter and of an objective scientific methodology. In, that, in those two crucial ways, he is the father of science as much as of logic. Now, I said that there were universal axioms presupposed by all knowledge no matter what the subject matter. And of course, of these, the most famous is the laws of logic, which in a way is Aristotle's supreme achievement. You know the law of contradiction. Nothing can be A and non-A at the same time and in the same respect. The law of excluded middle. Everything is either A or non-A at a given time and in a given respect. 
called excluded middle because the middle is excluded. It's either A or non-A. It can't be sort of A or partly non-A. It either is or it isn't, but there's no middle ground. That's why you call it the law of excluded middle, which is the metaphysically the antithesis of, quote, moderation and the middle of the road. Now, as to the law of identity, just for the record, although it always goes along with the other two and is regarded as an Aristotelian law, and although it's obviously all over the place in Aristotle implicitly, as a formally defined law, the law of identity was not discovered, as far as I can tell, until the 12th century AD by a philosopher known as Antonius Andreas. Uh, but that's just a minor wrinkle because it's always called an Aristotelian law because it's so obviously the same essential point as the law of contradiction and excluded middle. Contradiction and excluded middle, Aristotle defined and named. Now these laws, says Aristotle, are laws, the laws of logic are laws of all of reality. They are not laws simply of reality insofar as it consists of living things or of reality insofar as it consists of quantitative things. They are laws of reality insofar as it is real. They are laws of everything which exists insofar as it exists. In other words, in his famous expression, they are laws of being qua being. In other words, of everything by simply virtue of the fact that it is, no matter what it is. These laws, says Aristotle, the knowledge of these laws is a precondition of any acquisition of knowledge on any level in any field. You can't know anything without knowing them. You couldn't make the most rudimentary reasoning because being the laws of logic, they are presupposed to get, in some implicit form in your mind, they are presupposed to get from the premises to the conclusion. And the first time you grasp an argument, if I looked at you and said, all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is not mortal, you either can tell that there's something wrong with that or you can't. If you can't, obviously you're in a bad way. If you can, it's because whether by knowing it explicitly or not, you know. But look, all men can, can't say all men are mortal, and here's one who isn't, because it's an A and a non-A. And in that implicit form, no one can get off the ground cognitively who doesn't know the laws of logic. How do we arrive at them then? Obviously not by reasoning. If we tried to arrive at them by reasoning, that would be impossible. How could we reason if we didn't know the principles of reason? And therefore, the only way we can arrive at them is by direct abstraction from self-evident sensory facts. We simply, says Aristotle, observe, this cup is not both red and not red. This table is not both green and not green. This lady is not both tall and not tall, etc. And at a certain point, uh, if we're not uh, too dense, we get the message, everything must be consistent, nothing can be A and non-A. That is simply self-evident. Now, in the translations of Aristotle, the faculty which grasps the self-evident is given the forbidding and misleading name intuitive nous. Nous, N-O-U-S, is the Greek word for mind. Aristotle was called the nous of Plato's academy. In other words, the brain of the school, you see intuitive as used in translations of Aristotle has no mystic connotations at all not any it simply means intuitive news simply means the human mind in its capacity to grasp self-evident principles 
as opposed to the deductive or reasoning noose which makes, draws conclusions from these principles. Now, as students of objectivism, I trust that you appreciate the importance and indispensability of the laws of logic, so I won't here comment further on them. The three parts of Atlas Shrugged are, of course, Ms. Rand's testimonial to her view of the importance of this discovery, the names of the three parts. I will observe that Aristotle also had to deal with uh, skeptics, people who said, well, it might be self-evident to you, but it's not self-evident to me. I don't accept these laws. Maybe that's just the way you were brought up, etc. You know, the standard hot-off-the-griddle modern skepticism, which is only two or three thousand years old. And in a very famous chapter of his metaphysics, chapter Gamma, or book four, as it's called, rather book, not chapter, Aristotle offers a classic refutation of such opponents of the laws of logic. I want to give you an indication of it, at least. He devised on his own a brilliant technique to deal with all these objectors and skeptics with regard to the laws of logic. His reasoning was like this. If the laws of logic are truly the foundation of all human thought, then we should be able to demonstrate that even the objector has to rely upon That even he can't escape them. That these laws are truly inescapable. And so he says, I propose to show that even the man who denies the laws of logic must count on the laws of logic even to utter his denial. Now, if you can do that, you have taken care of the objector. This technique is called the technique of reaffirmation through denial. That is, the skeptic is forced to reaffirm the laws in the act of denying them. Now, how does it work? Aristotle says, get the skeptic. He's filled with valuable tips on how to argue with skeptics. And he says, because he had the sophists around him who were as good, if not better, than anybody in that department today. Because they were honest, straightforward, and you could know what they were talking about. <coughs> uh, Aristotle says, Tell the skeptic to say something, anything, a word. He doesn't even have to say a whole phrase. But he has to say something meaningful or significant, not simply gibberish. Well, if it's meaningful, it has to mean what it means. It has to mean something. It has to have one meaning. And in other words, it has to exclude its opposite. In other words, it has to adhere to the law of contradiction. If the skeptic utters man, then... He's got to mean by man, man, and exclude non-man. Why? Because A is A, and it's not non-A. If the law of contradiction weren't true, you couldn't utter an intelligible word or sentence. Every time you opened your mouth, you would not only say yes, but also no. Your words wouldn't mean what they mean, you wouldn't be saying what you're saying. Now, perhaps the simplest way to illustrate this uh, technique is by the following hypothetical uh, 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 conversation. The skeptic comes in and says to Aristotle, I'm paraphrasing Aristotle's presentation. The skeptic comes in and says to Aristotle, the law of contradiction is false. Aristotle says, I'm glad to hear that you accept it. <laughs> and the skeptic says, what do you mean accept it? I just said it's false. It's completely wrong. I don't believe it. Aristotle says, I'm glad that you are such an avid champion of the law of contradiction. And the guy says, look, 
I said my view. I reject it. I think everything is riddled with contradictions. It's A and not A. I can't be any clearer than that. If it's false, it's false. <laughs> After all, A is A. Now that is the technique of reaffirmation through denial. And it is completely inescapable. It follows, says Aristotle, that the true opponent of the law of contradiction cannot speak. It can maintain nothing. And I quote you now from Book Gamma of the Metaphysics, quote, And at the same time, our discussion with such a man is evidently about nothing at all, for he says nothing. For he says neither yes nor no, but yes and no. And again, he denies both of these and says neither yes nor no, for otherwise there would already be something definite. One who is in this condition <laughs> will not be able either to speak or to say anything intelligible, for he says at the same time both yes and no. And now, uh, close quote. And then the thought occurs to him, well, what about somebody like Cratylus, who would just think the contradiction in his own mind but not speak? So he adds this sentence, quote, and if he makes no judgment but thinks and does not think indifferently, what difference will there be between him and a vegetable?" Unquote. <laughs> now he means that literally, not simply as an insult. In other words, it would be a man who's renounced his conceptual faculty, and therefore, in fact, has renounced his consciousness, and therefore is back on the level of vegetables, who are living entities devoid of consciousness. So such a man can maintain nothing. He can distinguish nothing, because of, from his point of view, nothing is anything. There is no identity, and consequently, there's no distinction between anything and anything else. And by the same token, such a man can take no action at all. Now, I'll read you one more fairly lengthy quote from the book Gamma of the Metaphysics, because it's such a marvelous demonstration of Aristotle's interest and concern for life on Earth, and for the actual practical meaning of abstract theories. He's talking about the people who deny the law of contradiction and what it would mean in actual practice if they live by the theories that they preach. Quote, It is in the highest degree evident that no one of those who maintain this view, nor anyone else, is really in the position he claims. Why does a man walk to Megara and not stay at home when he thinks he ought to be walking there? Why does he not walk early some morning into a well or over a precipice if one happens to be in his way? Why do we observe him guarding against this? Evidently, because he does not think that falling in is alike good and not good. Evidently, then, he judges one thing to be better and another worse. And if this is so, he must judge one thing to be a man and another to be not a man. One thing to be sweet and another to be not sweet. For he does not aim at and judge all things alike when, thinking it desirable to drink water or to see a man, he proceeds to aim at these specific things. Yet he ought to do the other if the same thing were alike a man and not a man. But as was said, there is no one who does not obviously avoid some things and not others. Therefore, as it seems, all men make unqualified judgments. And if this is not knowledge but opinion, I interject here, he has in mind the sophist to say, yes, we make... Uh, unqualified judgments, but after all, that's just a practical, pragmatic assumption 
that doesn't represent knowledge, just opinion on our part. And Aristotle says, and if this is not knowledge but opinion, the skeptic should be all the more anxious about the truth, as a sick man should be more anxious about his health than one who is healthy. For he who has opinions in comparison with the man who knows is not in a healthy state as far as the truth is concerned, unquote. And therefore the uh, famous summary of his view of the law of contradiction, the laws of logic, is the one that was quoted by uh, Miss Rand at the very end of Atlas, also from Book Gamma of the Metaphysics, where Ragnar uh, is reading the passage, and I will read it here just to summarize Aristotle's position on the law of contradiction and by implication all the laws of logic. Quote, The most certain principle of all is that regarding which it is impossible to be mistaken. For such a principle must be both the best known and non-hypothetical. For a principle which everyone must have who understands anything that is, is not a hypothesis. And that which everyone must know who knows anything, he must already have when he comes to a special study. Evidently then, such a principle is the most certain of all. Which principle this is, let us proceed to say. It is that the same attribute cannot at the same time belong and not belong to the same subject and in the same respect. Unquote. Well, so much for Aristotle on logic as far as these lectures are uh, concerned. Now, our time is uh, short, so let me just, uh, from the host of other epistemological achievements of Aristotle, which there's no time even to hint at, let me mention just two other achievements. He was the first to give a formal definition of truth uh, that is valid. Uh, truth, after all, being the goal of reasoning. And his famous definition has subsequently come to be called the correspondence theory of truth. It's the idea that an idea is true if it corresponds to the fact, if it states the way things actually are. His uh, wording, as I recall, is to say of, a, of that which is, that it is, or of that which is not, that it is not, is true. To say of that which is, that it is not, or of that which is not, that it is, is false. That's all. Truth is the relationship between a statement and reality when the statement corresponds to reality. Now, I know that sounds like just common sense, and no one could appreciate it until they steeped themselves in Kant, Hegel, Dewey, and the pragmatists. Only then would you be able to appreciate it so I give up any attempt to make you appreciate it now until and unless you're familiar with the followers of Kant. And the second brief passing point I wanted to make is uh, that Aristotle was the first to organize and define in a systematic way a great many common and widespread fallacies of reasoning. Uh, he is, for instance, uh, defined for the first time formally and named, begging the question, equivocation, complex question, oversimplified generalization, composition, division, ignoratio elenchi, and a host of others. Uh, you can get them out of any logic text or the question period if you want. I'll be glad to answer what they are. Uh, but uh, it has been the basis ever since for the classification of fallacies taught in logic courses. Now, in general, and given all the omissions, you are still in a position to assess Aristotle's epistemological achievement in summing up. He was the first man to recognize the sensory basis of all knowledge and the validity of the senses. The first to recognize the nature of scientific explanation, 
the first to define the principles of definition, the first to grasp the need of induction, the first to grasp the nature and rules of deduction, and to create the syllogism from scratch, the theory of it, the first to grasp, both in content and method, the concept of a specific science, the first to grasp the need for and the nature of axioms, the first to enunciate the laws of logic. Now, he did not say the last word on most of these subjects, but he did say virtually the first. He is therefore the father of reason and of the scientific method in all of its essentials. This is his great imperishable achievement in the field of epistemology. But that is only what he did in epistemology. Now let's take a more detailed look at some of his metaphysical ideas. Let's go back to the subject of universals in particular. You recall that I said that for Aristotle, everything which exists is a particular, it's a this, and it's also a certain kind of thing, a such. It has common properties which it shares with other things on the basis of which we can classify it. So that there are two elements comprising each thing. The particularizing or individuating element, that which makes it a this, which Aristotle called matter, and the common or universalizing element, which he called form. Two aspects which are separable in thought, but not in reality. Now let's go on from here. Aristotle asks, in effect, can we specify more clearly what we mean by matter and form? Matter, we know, is what makes a thing a particular, a this, the principle of individuation. But what is it about a thing which is unique to it? What is it within a given thing that is the element responsible for its particularity? What makes a thing particular? And equally, he said, we say that form is what makes a thing such, which makes what makes it a kind of thing. But what is this element that is responsible for universality? What is the element in common? So we want now, in effect, to perform a metaphysical dissection of things into two elements and say exactly what they are. Now, to understand Aristotle's answer, imagine that I confront you with a field of bricks. This is, in effect, my own example, but it's his point. And I ask you to build me a number of houses out of these bricks. Well, you take one lot of the bricks, you put them together in a certain way, and you have a house. Now notice I said you put them together in a certain way. You give the bricks a certain structure. That's what makes it a house. You took the same bricks and put them together differently, you'd have a bridge or a fence or a table or whatever, but not a house. Now I suppose you take another lot of bricks and you make another house. So what is common, let us suppose you build 10 houses, what is common to them all? The same structure the same pattern of organization, the same way of relating the elements, the bricks. And that's why they're all houses rather than bridges, tables, etc. But now suppose we point to one particular house and say, well, what makes this house this one as distinct from all the others? Well, the obvious answer would be, well, it's made of this lot of bricks rather than that lot of bricks. The stuff of this house, the matter of it, is different and unique to it. The structure is common and makes it a house. The stuff or material is unique and makes it 
this house. Now we could descend a little deeper and do the same thing with the bricks. Take any individual brick. It too is made of some stuff, some material, suppose cement. Now what makes it this brick rather than that one? Well, it was made out of this glob of, let us suppose, cement rather than that glob. What makes it a brick? In other words, a certain kind of thing? Well, the structure or organization of the cement, as against making out of that same cement a statue, a vase, etc. In general, says Aristotle, everything is made of some stuff, some material. And that material is organized, structured, formed in some particular way. The form, which is now synonymous with the structure, is what gives the thing its character, its suchness, its classification. The material or stuff is what's unique to it, what makes it this particular instance of its class, as against all others. And therefore, Aristotle identifies the universal particular distinction with the structure-stuff distinction. Uh, universal comes from structure, particularity from stuff. And so form and matter come now to mean structure-stuff. A very, very crucial point of his with which objectivism does not agree. Now, if this is the basis for all universals, as it is for Aristotle, then obviously the concepts of stuff and structure must mean more than just physical stuff and spatial structure, as in the examples I've given so far of the bricks and the houses. Because there are universals of things other than physical entities like bricks and houses. So we have to extremely broaden now our notion of what we mean by matter. Matter for Aristotle is going to mean any content, any stuffing, any filling, so to speak, of any kind. And form is going to mean any structure, any organization, any pattern of relationships that is imposed on that filling or stuffing in virtue of which the thing has some specific nature. Now take a completely non-physical example. Two syllogisms. The Socrates one, which I quoted and won't take the time to repeat. And I'll make up another one. All bright students get an A in this course, assuming I were giving it a grade. Uh, you are a bright student, therefore you get an A in this course. Now these are each a particular syllogism, this one plus the Socrates one, and each is a syllogism. Well, what makes it a syllogism? What is the common denominator? Well, obviously the structure of the terms. In each case, we have three terms. One is the middle, one is the minor, one is the major. The organization is the same. That's what makes it a syllogism. But what makes the Socrates syllogism this one as against the getting an A syllogism that one? Well, obviously, the stuffing is different. In other words, the particular terms. The terms of one are Socrates, man, and mortal, and of the other, uh, bright student, get an A, and um, you. You get the idea. Stuff and structure. Here mean the content of the terms and the organization. And that's why, to this day, uh, Aristotelian logic is called formal logic, because Aristotle's discovery was that the validity of your reason, the validity, depends exclusively upon the form, on the structure. 
doesn't make any difference what the content is. If it's organized a certain way, the conclusion has to follow. That, of course, doesn't mean the conclusion is necessarily true if the premises are wrong. But simply on the technical question of does the conclusion follow, it's dictated by form, not by matter. And to this day, therefore, courses in logic that teach Aristotle's view are called formal logic. Or take a different example. Take a sonnet. Now, a definite form is required to be a sonnet. That's what makes it a sonnet. A certain number of lines, rhyme scheme, etc. But what makes this sonnet this one rather than that? Its particular content or subject matter, as we would say. Therefore, for Aristotle, matter is used in a much broader sense than physical matter. Physical matter is only one type of matter, as Aristotle uses the term. Matter means the stuffing, the filling, the ingredients, the raw material, whether it be the physical stuff or, for instance, the stuff of a novel, which would be the episodes, the situations, the characters, or the stuff of a word, which would be like the syllables or the letters making it up, or the stuff of a person's character, for instance, his passions, his thoughts, his tendencies, or the stuff of a concept. What is the stuff or matter of a concept? Well, a concept is a certain organization imposed on sense data. It's sense data integrated, organized in a certain way. So a concept is also simply a structure imposed on a matter. In this case, a mental structure imposed on a sensory uh, matter. In every case, matter of whatever type will always be organized, put together, structured in some way or other, giving us a certain kind of product owing to the kind of structure imposed on the matter, whether the product be a house, a syllogism, a novel, a concept, or whatever. So for Aristotle, the following statements all mean essentially the same thing. Everything is a particular of a certain kind. Everything is matter of a certain form. Everything is comprised of stuff structured or organized or formed in a certain manner. Now, this is the basic concept of Aristotle's metaphysics. This form, matter, structure, stuff distinction. And a good deal of the rest of Aristotle's metaphysics consists of applying this basic distinction, which has, I should hasten to add, validity in many contexts. Uh, it consists of applying this distinction to various crucial philosophic problems. Showing how, if you grasp this distinction, we can answer many hitherto unsolved dilemmas. Now, for this evening, I want to follow him through just one such dilemma. And I mean the problem of change. You remember the problem as bequeathed by Heraclitus and Parmenides. Heraclitus had said change implies a contradiction, because at the end, remember when we lit the match, it's the same thing, but it's not the same. Aristotle says, true enough, it's the same and it's not the same. But in two different respects, there are, after all, two elements making up a thing. The thing which makes it this and the thing which makes it the kind of thing it is, that gives it its qualities. Now, when the match changes, it's the same individual match at the end. Right, that means the matter is the same. But, it has new qualities at the end. True enough, that simply means the matter has taken on a new form. That matter is now different in respect of its organization. And that's why it's now black, hot, and smoky, instead of uh, pink, uh, cool, and non-smoky. 
So there is no contradiction in change. Change for Aristotle is simply the process of the same matter taking on new form. The result will be a thing which is the same and different. But that's no contradiction if you specify the two respects. Or look at the problem from the perspective of Parmenides. Parmenides said, how can there be change? What is not, for instance, is becoming what is, and vice versa. That when the flower, when the seed becomes the flower, at the beginning the flower was not, and at the end it is. And vice versa, at the beginning the seed is, and at the end it's, it's what is not. And therefore change really involves a miraculous appearance out of nothing and a miraculous disappearance into nothing, and that's hope. Well, Aristotle said, look, the material, the basic material has always existed. It merely changed its form. When the seed becomes the flower, nothing comes into existence or goes out of existence. It's merely a different form imposed on the same fundamental material. And therefore, Aristotle draws the conclusion change does not involve a contradiction. A changing world, and this is his main concern, is an intelligible, understandable world. As against Plato, Parmenides, Heraclitus, he refuses to degrade this world into a semi-reality uh, mixed with being and non-being on the grounds that change is contradictory. He says, no, this world is fully real and non-contradictory. As for the idea that uh, change conflicts with the law of identity, he says, he also says, in addition to the points I've made, that truth is the exact opposite. Change, he says, presupposes the law of identity. Because what do you mean by change? Change is change from something to something, from one identity to another. If there were no identity, if nothing is anything, if everything is riddled with contradiction, then you can't have change. Change of what? From what to what? Obviously, it would be impossible. What is his ultimate conclusion? You are right that it is a changing world, he says to Plato. But change is perfectly logical and rationally understandable. Now, for Aristotle, it's very important to examine and understand the phenomenon of change thoroughly, because that is the means, he says, of saving this world from the platonic degradation into a semi-real, unintelligible world. Therefore, he devoted a great deal of time and attention to an analysis of the phenomenon of change, to try to carve out the conceptual categories in terms of which change would be fully intelligent. And I want to follow his analysis of change for a few minutes and introduce you to some of the further concepts that he originated to make change fully intelligent. Change, we said, is the process of matter taking on new form. Well, we can therefore use the term matter somewhat differently than I so far have indicated and start to speak of the thing as a whole as being matter relative to a later state of development, relative to a future form it can take on. We can start to speak of a thing as a whole as being matter for some future state. For instance, consider the bricks becoming a house. Now, just first, the bricks by themselves are matter, namely cement, organized a certain way into a brick given form. But now, regard the bricks 
not in themselves, but in relation to the house they are going to become. Well, if you look at them from that perspective, you can say, relative to the future house, the bricks themselves are simply matter. In themselves, of course, they're matter and form. But relative to the house, they are simply matter. They are matter of the house that is to come. Matter for the house. And the house now, when it comes, relative to the bricks, is simply form. It is the new form imposed on that matter. Or take Aristotle's favorite example of an acorn becoming an oak. Now in itself, as abstracting away from any change in the so-called static analysis, matter, uh, an acorn is a combination of form and matter like everything else. Its various compounds, which are its stuff, organized a certain way to make an acorn. But now, acorns and various other chemicals in the soil combined, in the soil combined, can be reshaped, can acquire a new form, can become a tree. And so, relative to the oak tree, the acorn is simply matter. It's matter for the oak. And the oak, relative to the acorn, is simply form. It is form, the new form given to the acorn. See, there are these two senses, the so-called static sense, in which a thing is always matter and form, and the so-called dynamic sense, when you think of a thing as matter relative to the next form, or as form relevant to the, relative to the subsequent, the preceding matter. And to avoid confusion, Aristotle carved out a new set of terms, a new set of concepts to stand for the dynamic, changing uh, use of this concept. The terms potentiality and actuality. Bricks, he said, we can say are matter for a house, but it's clearer to say, although it means exactly the same thing, bricks are potentially a house. And the house, when it comes, is the actuality of the bricks. In other words, it is the actualization of their potentiality, the thing which gives a new form to the bricks, the thing which contains in full reality what had earlier existed only potentially. Or the acorn, we can say, is potentially an oak. It is matter for an oak, and the oak is the fulfillment or actuality of the acorn's potentialities. Now, uh, you're obviously enormously familiar with this because you all use the terms potential and actual. This was their actual genesis in Aristotle's metaphysics. In his sense, therefore, matter is any material which has potentialities for reorganization. Any material which can become or do something else. And form is any structure in which these potentialities are actualized. So Aristotle will say, for instance, and see if you can now translate, his literal sentence will be something like, a closed eye is matter for seeing. Now, can you translate that? I mean, simply. A closed eye has the potentiality to see, assuming it's not blind. And when you open the eye, you then have the actuality, the form of what before you had only the matter. The thought here is actually quite simple. You have to get used to the terminology. It still survives today in an attenuated sense, Aristotle's actual usage of matter. If you utter a sentence like, he's got good stuff in him. Now that's Aristotle's use of the term stuff, you see. He's got potentialities, you see. Or if you say he's good material for football, that use of material is Aristotle's sense. Or he's great presidential timber. That use of timber is actually the literal original Greek sense because the original Greek word 
Hule, which Aristotle uses for matter, in the time before Aristotle meant actually timber. All of those are our ways simply of saying he has potentialities, you see. And uh, when he, uh, sometimes we say when he actualizes his potentialities, well, he's really in form today. And you see, that's the Aristotelian uh, form equals actuality. So if we use the potentiality-actuality terminology, we can say change for Aristotle is the passage from potentiality to actuality. And so we have another way of putting the answer to Parmenides. Parmenides said when the seed becomes the flower, we have nothing becoming something, namely the non-flower becoming the flower. Aristotle says this is wrong. You don't have nothing becoming something. You have one kind of reality, potential reality, namely the flower at the start, becoming another kind of reality, actual reality, the flower at the end. Change is the passage, therefore, from one form of being to another, from potential to actual, all of it taking place within the confines of reality and what is, at no point depending upon what is not. Now let's go on. Observe that everything that is matter relative to a later stage of development is form relative to an earlier state. Everything, or let's be very precise, almost everything. We'll see some exceptions next week. <coughs> but leaving aside the exceptions, everything is the form of some preceding matter. In other words, the actualization of earlier potentialities. And at the same time, it is matter for a future form. It is potentialities for yet future actualization. The universe consists of entities constantly realizing their potentialities, passing from matter to form, which is in turn matter for a future form, and so on. And you get whole chains, therefore, whole hierarchies, where each step is successively more formed than the one before. Start with grass, for instance. Now grass comes from something. Some potentiality made it possible. Namely, let us say, a seed. Grass seed. So grass seed would be the matter, the potentiality, of which grass is the actuality. But now, in relation to what's coming, grass is also potentiality. For instance, it can be eaten by a cow and turn into beef. And so we say grass is form in relation to the seed, but matter in relation to the cow, part of which it can become. And then, of course, the beef of that cow can be incorporated by us and become human flesh, so that goes on, you see. Or the oak is actuality in relation to the acorn, potentiality in relation to timber. The timber is actuality in relation to the potentialities of the oak which could be split and so on. And in relation to the ships that you'll build out of the timber, the timber is potentiality. Or take a concept. That's the actuality or the potentialities of the sense data. And in turn, once you have concepts, you have the potentiality for a new organization, namely combining several concepts together into a premise or a proposition, which is the actuality of the potentialities of a concept. And in turn, a proposition is the potentiality of being combined in a new organization with other principles to make a whole argument, which in turn is the potentiality of a whole science, etc. Now, what is the significance of these chains? 
it is the actual metaphysical foundation for the view that reality is lawful and orderly. Because what a thing is matter for depends on its nature, on what it is actually. You can make a ship out of timber, but not out of acorns. You, man can live on beef, but not on grass seeds. You can make a science out of syllogism, but not out of sheer unorganized sense data. In other words, within certain limits, the order of these as cycles of actualization is necessary. It is not true that anything is possible. Now note the word possible. That's here the concept potentiality. As the father of potentiality, Aristotle insists emphatically, it is not true that everything has any potentiality. It is not true, therefore, that anything could happen. Could is just a synonym for potential. It is simply not true that anything can be followed by anything. There are laws governing what occurs in the world. The world is an ordered structure or hierarchy of things which are related as matter to form. And therefore, if we grasp the rules by appropriate inductive-deductive methods, we can predict we can explain a thing's behavior in terms of its nature and know what to expect. It is not a wild, chaotic, lawless universe. What a thing can do, its potentialities, depend on and derive from what it is, its actualities. Actualities determine potentialities, a fundamental law of Aristotelian metaphysics. And that actually is the real metaphysical basis of the distinction we covered in epistemology between essence and properties, because the essence is really the actuality of the thing, and the uh, property is the consequences of that essence. So this is really the metaphysical basis of Aristotle's theory of explanation. What a thing is matter for depends on its form. Now, I might add parenthetically, this is the basis for a formal proof of the law of cause and effect. And the proof is very simple. If you combine this premise with the law of identity, you simply say a thing in a given set of circumstances can, i.e. has the potentiality to act only in one way, the way dictated by its nature. In any given set of circumstances, an entity with a certain nature has only one potentiality, and that is therefore how it will have to behave, and the same entity under the same circumstances will therefore always behave that way. In other words, same cause, same effect. Anything else would involve a contradiction of the nature of the entity, the ascription to it of a potentiality conflicting with its actuality. Now, you see, that is a perfectly unanswerable formal proof of cause and effect. Now, I should say that this is implicit in Aristotle in the way I've just indicated, but not explicit. This is one of the places where Aristotle's Platonism, judged by the surviving documents in any event, got the better of him. And in many places, he indicates that he does not subscribe to the universal reign of cause and effect. Um, uh, so, and I will mention some of those next week. So apparently, apparently, Aristotle had no clear idea explicitly of the universal reign of law in the universe. Apparently. But in any event, he bequeathed to his followers the fundamental premises which, from which it does not take too much intelligence to construct an actual proof. Uh, the importance of this 
uh, discovery is, is, is that it represents the primacy of existence approach to the law of cause and effect, as it gains both the mystic and the skeptic approach to that question. You know, the typical mystic approach to cause and effect is to say, the reason things are so orderly is because God wants them that way. He derives causality, law, and order from the activity of a, of a supernatural uh, designing being. That's the so-called argument from design. Of course there must be a supernatural consciousness because who could make a tree behave so well uh, if it weren't for God? That's the primacy of consciousness approach to causality. And as against that, there's the skeptic approach, which had its adherents in the ancient world, and Nisodemus is an example, and of course its most famous adherent in the modern world, David Hume. Uh, who denied causality altogether and said all he knows is that anything could happen at any time and if you throw a penny in the air for all he knows it could turn into Hegel. Of course he didn't use that example not being imaginative enough to foresee Hegel. <laughs> Nevertheless a truly Aristotelian point of view is to say that both of these points of view the divine miracle as point of view and the human skeptic point of view on causality are contradictory. They imply a contradiction. They imply the possibility of an entity acting in contradiction to its nature. Either or both views imply that, and therefore both are out. Now let's continue. We've said that change is matter taking on new forms. Or, alternatively, the same point, its potentiality being actualized. But now Aristotle wanted to know how does this actually happen? Surely potentiality cannot actualize itself. Take the example of clay becoming a statue or bricks becoming a house. Let us look more closely into the factors involved in any process of change, using those as an example because we want to know what to look for to understand such a change. There must be something to understand because the bricks don't jump into a house just by themselves. How many factors are there involved in any change that we have to understand if we're to understand it fully? Aristotle answers in a famous doctrine, four. Four factors, which are called the four causes of a change. Now, cause here is not, is itia in Greek, it is not used in the modern sense fully, but in a broader sense. Cause for Aristotle means any factor that is necessary for a change to occur. Any answer to the question why. So, in effect, this is Aristotle's definition of why. What are you asking when you ask why? And he says there's four possible things you could mean and only four possible answers. And the sum of those four answers is the complete answer to the question why. Now if we take a specific example, let us suppose a man starts with some clay and molds it into a statue of Aristotle. Can we isolate the four factors? Well, one obvious factor is the clay we started with, the matter we started with, and that is the material factor, or what Aristotle calls the material cause. Now, obviously, we have the statue at the end of the change. In other words, the new form that we have imposed on the matter. And that will be the formal cause. But now something was required. 
to get from the matter to the new form. Some agent to act upon the matter, to transform it into the, well, to transform it is enough. Transform is our way of saying give it a new form. Some agent is required. In this case, of course, the molding actions of the sculptor. This is what Aristotle calls the efficient cause. Namely, the actual source of the motion, that which brings it about. Now, efficient here does not mean it does its work splendidly. Efficient comes from facio, a Latin root meaning to make. So this is actually the cause which makes it, the transition take place. And finally, says Aristotle, there is a fourth factor. The sculptor took these actions and shaped the clay for a purpose, an end, a goal. For instance, he wanted to decorate his apartment or the, the uh, agora, or he wanted to commemorate Aristotle or whatever. He had, in other words, an end in Latin fines, and thus the final cause, the purpose. So for Aristotle, there are really four senses of why. If I point to this statue now and say why, why is this a statue? You could say because there was some clay around. That's the material component. Or because it's shaped like a human body. That is the formal cause. Or, because certain actions molded the clay. That is the efficient cause. Or, because somebody wanted to immortalize Aristotle. That is the final cause. So to understand a change fully, says Aristotle, you have to know four factors. The material you started with, the form it ended with, the agent which effected the transition, and the end or goal of the process. Change is a change from something to something by some means for some end or goal. Now this should raise many questions in your mind. This is presented as a metaphysical analysis. So you should properly ask me at this stage, does Aristotle mean that the four causes apply to every change? Does every change have an end, or a goal, or a purpose? Is Aristotle then a teleologist, a universal teleologist like Plato? And if he is, how does he defend such a viewpoint? And of course, there's many other questions that we have left unanswered about Aristotle's metaphysics. What about the unmoved mover, Aristotle's so-called God? How does he fit in? And how does Aristotle, for instance, answer Zeno? Remember that you couldn't cross the room. What are Aristotle's views on infinity? And on other subjects, how does Aristotle defend the senses against the basic attack of the sophists? And what problems are there in Aristotle's philosophy to which he has no answer? And what about his psychology, his theory of the human soul and its relation to the body, and his ethics, and his politics? Now, the answers to all of these questions and still others constitute the subject of next week's lecture. So we will draw a line at this point for tonight. You have had at least a sample of Aristotle's all-encompassing genius and integrating power, enough, I trust, to hold you for one evening. In any event, that is all I can pack in for tonight. Thank you very much.
I was saying I have a huge wealth of questions and I will try to be as brief and terse as I can and get through as many as I can. Any ones that uh, are at all going to be covered next week, I simply scrap for the present. Could I please repeat uh, who was the author of The Law of Identity? Antonius, A-N-T-O-N-I-U-S. Andreas, A-N-D-R-E-A-S. I do not offhand know the source, but you can find it in Sir William Hamilton's book on the history of logic, the title of which presently escapes me. But there's only one Sir William Hamilton, so... at least in philosophy. Why would a definition of man as a rational mammal or rational living thing be wrong? Uh, let me try to put it to you this way. It would not be wrong according to the objectivist view of definition, which differs from the Aristotelian view of definition. Aristotle believes that essences are intrinsic. That is to say, he believes that the characteristics which make up the essence of an entity or of a class of entities are carved out by nature entirely independently of man's state of knowledge. And therefore, whether we do or don't know whatever facts, the essence is fixed once and for all by reality. It is a fact inhering in the entity the same way the length, the size, and the shape are. Now, objectivism does not take this view. Objectivism holds that essences are objective, neither subjective nor intrinsic, that they represent facts of reality, therefore are not subjective, but facts as categorized by human beings in accordance with their process of acquiring knowledge. And therefore, for objectivism, you have to always ask in connection with definitions and essences, what is the purpose, cognitively? The purpose is to enable us to distinguish our concepts, to differentiate one concept from another. The characteristics which will do this at one frame of knowledge are quite different from those which will do it in another. And thus, for instance, if you are at a very primitive stage and all you know is thing, and uh, you can tell that man is a rational thing, and other things are not, thing is a perfectly reputable genus. Now, as your knowledge expands and you begin to want to make more important distinctions than simply thing versus non-thing, and you begin to tell living thing versus non-living and animal versus plant, your, your genus begins to narrow to the point where it is specific enough to capture uh, the kind of knowledge of man that is required at your present knowledge and to differentiate man from all the other things. Now, how specific do you get? As specific as is necessary to integrate your knowledge. If you are a physicist, uh, a, a uh, biologist, and you will work constantly with subdivisions of animal, it's perfectly justified to say man is the rational uh, mammal as distinct from other types in that context but within the framework of generalized human knowledge, that is not specialized, animal is the genus which defines man specifically enough without becoming too specialized. And therefore, objectivism would say that within the framework of present knowledge, it is the best general genus for man. Now, of course, Aristotle, uh, following uh, the Platonic influence, says that 
the essence is carved out by nature, and therefore there can be no such thing as contextual essences or contextual definitions. That is one central point at which uh, objectivism disagrees with Aristotle. Although he has many valuable rules of definition, both he and Plato ultimately say the definition has to come down to an act of noose, that is, of that intuitive grasp. And there, unfortunately, uh, intuition is used in a less rational sense as a direct insight. And, of course, that makes the whole theory vulnerable to the charge of being implicitly mystical, uh, which is not Aristotle's intention, but is the actual net effect. Now, obviously, I couldn't hope to make the whole objectivist view clear. I wouldn't attempt to. In an answer to a question on Aristotle, I simply refer you to Miss um, Rand's introduction to objectivist epistemology, where this is discussed at length. Uh, let me see if I can get some brief ones, because that was a long one. Would Aristotle favor an analytic-synthetic dichotomy? I have to presuppose you know what that means, uh, so as not to present it. The answer is, if you interpret that to mean a dichotomy between the logical and the factual, then certainly no. He believes the laws of logic are facts of reality. But insofar as you interpret that to mean a dichotomy between necessary and contingent truths, then yes. He does make such a distinction, partly because he believes that essences are intrinsic. In this respect, he is a Platonist, and he does, this ties in with the point I mentioned earlier that he does not believe in universal causal necessity. Uh, for details on this, you'll have to wait till next week or read my article on the analytic synthetic dichotomy where I discuss it. When you commented that the laws of induction had not been written out, did you mean to imply someone had discovered them but hadn't yet written them out? I mean, to be very precise, that objectivism in my judgment, that is to say, Ayn Rand's epistemology, has formulated the principles of the answer to the problem of induction. But those principles have not been written out as applied specifically to induction. And I trust one day within all of our lifetimes, they will be. Um, uh, could you give us an indication of what a valid defense of the principle of induction would be? Does it involve the law of causality? Well, if you mean a justification of the general procedure of induction, Aristotle himself gives you the material for that. You are justified in generalizing because, in fact, cause and effect is a law of reality. And therefore, uh, the instances that we observe are not chance coincidences, and therefore we can justifiably generalize, in general. But if you ask me, but how do you know in a particular case that the sample you have observed is really representative of a law and not simply a coincidence, or something that depends on a necessary condition that you haven't identified, then you are asking me for the detailed theory of the actual practice of induction, and that is what I suggest you read in the book which I mentioned in the previous question, which has not yet been written. <laughs> now, here is one out of left field, which I cannot resist saying a word about because I have just finished 150 pages on this exact question in my book. Who was the father of altruism in philosophy? Uh, would it surprise you if, you if I said the answer is Fichte? That is the answer I defend in my book, The Ominous Parallels. In essence, I would say that altruism 
but you'll have to read the book for this because I couldn't condense that all into one answer. What it amounts to is that altruism, as the formal theory that the essence of the good is sacrifice specifically for other people, not mixing in sacrifice for God or any element of egoistic selfishness, pure self-sacrifice for others is a post-Kantian development. It was foreshadowed by Christianity. It was foreshadowed by Platonism. There were large hunks of it, but mixed in with the idea that more important than sacrificing for others is sacrificing for God. And mixed in with the idea there's something in it for you. You'll get the other world or whatever. The idea of pure, selfless, total self-sacrifice for others is a post-Kantian phenomenon. And the first famous, influential, philosophical, consistent altruist is therefore the first famous, influential, consistent post-Kantian, Fichte, uh, whose works I analyze in my book. And thereafter, all the rest of them. So you can either say uh, uh, Christianity in the sense of starting the element, or Kant in the sense of annihilating everything else, or Fichte as the man who actually did it. Did Aristotle originate the concept of abstraction from particulars to grasp universals? Well, of course, there were leads in Plato, insofar as Plato said you had to have the stimuli of the senses in order to rise to abstraction. But so far as I know, as a formal theory of abstraction, as against simply recollective stimuli, uh, yes, he did originate that. Uh, in Aristotle's view that man is born tabula rasa, and then develops uh, concepts from percepts, would he include introspective knowledge as well as extrospective in this scheme? Yes. You're not born with knowledge of your mental states any more than of knowledge of physical facts. You have to first look in and grasp the data. And the faculty which does that, he thought, was called the common sense. That was his name for it. The faculty which is self-conscious, able to introspect and grasp the nature of the mental activities we were engaging in. And so you need data from the common sense, what we would call today introspection, which you then proceed to conceptualize in the normal fashion. What was Aristotle's most influential single contribution to thought? If I had to select one, I'd say the laws of logic. Uh, this one I already answered. After forming a definition, can one arbitrarily form a word for that concept, or is the word chosen based on the units of the concept? Well, uh, first of all, I don't know, are you asking me qua objectivist or expositor of Aristotle? But if I understand you, it doesn't make any difference anyway. If you distinguish the word from the concept, then you must mean by the word the particular sound or shape used. Because the word qua standing for those particular <coughs> units that it integrates is, of course, the concept. Now, obviously, you're free to choose any noise you want. If you get a certain group and abstract and form the class that we now call man, there's nothing metaphysically or epistemologically sacrosanct about the sound man as against the sound mensch or uh, lom or homo or anthropos or whatever it happens to be. And therefore the sound is absolutely free. Uh, you can make it whatever you want so long as you are consistent. But if you step into a developed language and propose to speak to other speakers in that language and say, however, I intend to use words in my own special way and hereafter I'm going to mean by man, banana. 
Now, I want everybody in this room to volunteer for a cake. If you talk that way, that is out. Please redefine a syllogism. A deductive argument. I assume you want to copy. Containing two premises and three terms. Two of which are linked in the conclusion as a result of the linking of each of them with the third or middle term in the premises. That is a modern definition. Aristotle defines syllogism much more broadly to mean in effect any process of reasoning or any process of deductive reasoning because he was not familiar with the fact that there are other types of deductive reasoning or he didn't focus on them. But uh, syllogism is actually a more specific type of reasoning. Let's try. I have a bunch here, but where did all these come from? Uh, let's try a few from the floor. Yes. I'd like to save that till next week. Objectivism's view on Aristotle asks me in the question period next time because we have much more to say about form and matter. There are many different usages. They're not all the same. He is not consistent. And uh, certain aspects are perfectly sensible. Uh, others are not. Objectivism disagrees with the idea that universal is form uh, and that uh, particular is matter. Uh, it is stuff. It disagrees with that entirely and you will see next week that that leaves Aristotle, his formulation, leaves him in a terrible hole from which he couldn't escape. But we'll have to wait for that. So don't ask me now for the objectivist view, but for Aristotle's view on the topics already discussed tonight. Yes? Well, do you mean was Aristotle a mechanist? It was atomic? Well, he agreed that change involves rearrangement of matter, but in his sense of rearrangement, not simply spatial change, but change of form, where form means structure and is not reducible for Aristotle simply to locomotion. In that sense, Aristotle does not agree with the atomist that all change is reducible to locomotion. He does not believe it. Yes? Did Aristotle conceive of the existence of a vacuum? No, Aristotle denies the existence of a vacuum. All right, let's take a few more written ones. Oh, fine. Would you comment on the standard criticism of the correspondence theory of truth? Namely, that such a theory is fruitless since we can never get outside of our minds to validate that our ideas, in fact, correspond to reality. Yes, I'd like to know what in the world is the basis for such a premise. Now, of course, if you hold the view of all the moderns, Descartes, Locke, Berkeley, Hume, Kant, etc., that all we perceive, or Protagoras, that all we perceive is our own subjective experiences, our own intellectual mental content, which becomes a little world inside our heads and that we're therefore cut off from reality, obviously then the correspondence theory would be no good. And that's just the grounds on which Kant and his followers rejected it, that reality is unknowable. 
But what is the justification of the premise that we do not perceive reality directly, only its effects on us? The answer is the argument that Protagoras gave and that I gave you in this course. If you know the answer to that, you have no problem with his argument. The answer to that is Lecture 12. Some of these would involve long... Would you suggest good translations of Aristotle? Well, there's two kinds of translations. There's the standard definitive translation. Edit the Oxford edition is the 12 volumes, edited by W.D. Ross, the most famous of the Aristotelian commentators in the 20th century. And that's the one I've been reading you. That is the standard translation, scholarly annotated and uh, as reliable as you can get. It is not very readable. Um, but then that is not the fault of the translator. There are occasionally translations that come out Aristotle for graduate students. There's no Aristotle for every man that I know, but there's Aristotle <laughs> for graduate students, which is more readable, but not too good. Um, I remember one by a man called Hope, which is a translation of Aristotle's Metaphysics, which is a little freer than the usual. Uh, as somebody once said about, Ar about translations of Aristotle, that if you know Greek, you can usually understand the English translation. <laughs> but uh, the uh, English translations you really have to work for because it's a different language, Greek, than English. And consequently, what they can express very tersely requires a whole circumlocution and paraphrase in English because the languages are so different in their structure. And therefore, a sentence which is shortened to the point in Greek goes on and on in English and you have to remember each part separately and build it all up again in your mind. It can be done, but it's not uh, bedtime reading. Um, do I have some more from the floor? Anybody near the back? Yes, I see a lady. Begging the question, what is that? Begging the question is the fallacy, the logical fallacy of using or assuming what you are trying to prove in advance of or as part of your proof. Assuming the thing in question. One common form of it is circular reasoning. For instance, you go to a banker to borrow money and he tells you he will loan you the money if he knew that you were reliable but he has no verification of your reliability. And you say, well, I've got this friend of mine here and this friend has known me for years and he will uh, vouch for my reliability. And the banker says, well, that would be great, but the trouble is I don't know your friend. And you say to him, well, I've known him for years, so don't worry, and I'll vouch for him. <laughs> that is going in a circle, you see. Your reasoning is, I am reliable, therefore he is reliable, therefore I am reliable. But you're assuming your reliability to prove it. That's begging the question. And Aristotle maintained, obviously correctly, that any attempt to prove the laws of logic as distinct from stating that they were self-evident would be begging the question. Because any reasoning relies on the laws of logic. The essence of reasoning is to say such and such premises. Now, since the laws of logic are true, such and such a conclusion follows. But if you tried to prove the laws of logic, if they were the conclusion of your argument, your reasoning would then be, such and such premises. Now, since the laws of logic are true, therefore the laws of logic are true. You'd have to use them to prove themselves. And therefore, there is no such thing as a proof of the laws of logic. You can't prove the principles of proof. 
All you can do is point to reality. And if the guy sees it, okay. If he says he doesn't see it, you can try the reaffirmation through denial technique. If he takes the one out from that argument and becomes like Kratlis and says, okay, then I won't talk at all, you can consider you did a good day's work. <laughs> Uh, what, if any, is the difference between induction and abstraction? As they're used today, it varies from writer to writer. Sometimes abstraction is said to be the process operating to form concepts from percepts, whereas induction is the process of forming general principles from individual facts. But that usage is by no means standard. Abstraction is sometimes used for any mental process which consists of selective focusing, in which you ignore one part of the data and focus on the rest. And in that respect, induction would involve abstraction as well as concept formation involving abstraction. Uh, so that the only thing that is for sure is that induction is commonly used to apply only to propositional truth to arrive at full-fledged laws, all men are mortal, etc. Whereas abstraction is used either for concept formation or for the overall mental process common to concept formation and generalization. Another from the floor. All right, in the front. Uh, scientific primary premises uh, a demonstration of why it acts by intuition. According to Aristotle, are the primary premises of a given science arrived at by intuition. In other words, the first principles that you reach at the end. Yes, he says yes. Now here's another case where obviously objectivism would disagree with Aristotle. You see, he patterned all scientific, all sciences on mathematics, which was partly the Pythagorean Platonist influence, but partly the fact that that was the one developed science where they had reached first principles. And so he just assumed that the same thing will be true in physics, in uh, biology, etc and that therefore there would be a counterpart to a straight line is the shortest distance between two points in physics. And in fact, he thought he had found such primary principles of physics, which when you grasp are simply self-evident in the same way that the mathematical uh, axioms are, only it takes a lot of knowledge to get to them. Now, uh, he had no idea of the incredible complexity of science, and it's been said by a number of people that it's a good thing he didn't. Because if the Greeks knew how fantastically complicated it would be to unearth all the laws of the physical world, well, uh, some people hypothesize they would never have started. They would simply have given up. Maybe not, but in any event, it would be, in effect, like asking a child who's beginning to read to uh, uh, read the uh, 13 volumes of the Oxford English Dictionary overnight. He simply, it would be too much, and so you can't ask that. Now, if you ask me a different question, well, what? How would science come to an end if it's not by intuitive, self-evident principles that you reach how? I would say that answer would be dictated by your answer to the question of induction. Because as part of a full theory of induction, you will have to go into a theory of theory formation. There are, after all, other ways of arriving at general principles than simple inductive generalization. The atomic theory, for instance, you do not arrive at by inductive generalization. So Aristotle is deficient in not fully recognizing in his epistemology the crucial importance of theory formation. You do not arrive, for instance, at the atomic theory by saying, I observe 
that this is made of atoms and this is and this is and therefore everything is. You arrive at the atomic theory in quite a different way by saying, now I observe many individual facts, what would explain it? And then you hypothesize something that is not directly observable in the normal case. Now the rules for what kind of scientific hypotheses are valid or not is part of the issue of induction and has to be treated along with the topic of inductive generalization. And when you have the answers there, uh, and that will be given you ultimately by your theory of concept formation. So it's simply a matter of drawing corollaries from a theory of concept formation. When you have those answers, you'll know what would end a science. Oh, I'll do this one in a sentence. Would you contrast Aristotle's concept of explanation with the positivist notion that explanation is merely description? Yes, certainly. The positivists, the followers of Auguste Comte, and a whole string of them, uh, who added in a corruption of logic in addition and called themselves logical positivists in the 20th century, declare in essence that there is no such thing as explanation. All you can do is describe brute inexplicable facts. You can, in effect, give a summary of the sense data that trot by your eyes, and perhaps, if they are not too pessimistic, you can generalize and form some general rules that for some inexplicable reason this particular sense datum is followed by this one as a normal rule. Of course, you can never be certain according to them. That's why the school is called positivism. <laughs> now, Aristotle, of course, fundamentally repudiates that entire view. Explanation is different from description if description means simply a recitation and summary of the sense data going by you. Explanation isn't a conceptual identification of the causes in terms of general principles and by reference to the nature of the acting entities. It is therefore not something accessible to a simple perceptual level mentality and it is some real, it's something real and crucial in human knowledge is that which enables us to rise above the animal level. Now, of course, in a broader sense, you can say explanations are descriptions. The atomic theory is an explanation of many facts, but the atomic theory is a description of a fact of reality. So in that sense, everything, of course, is a description. But then there's a big difference between description, which is just a concrete bound description of sense data, and a description which is a much more fundamental account of the causes of what you observe. It's the latter sense, which is Aristotle's. Um, I will conclude on a written question which the gentleman who handed it in said he means in the spirit of goodwill. And since I've had it asked at the school where I teach any number of times, I'll state it publicly. It has nothing to do with Aristotle. Why is the phrase anti-Nixonites for Nixon not contradictory? <laughs> the answer is the context of the presidential election. An anti-Nixonite is somebody who does not approve of or like or agree with Nixon, which eminently describes the objective as viewpoint. For details, see misran several articles in the Ayn Rand letter on him. But that does not necessarily mean that they will not be for him in a particular election if the alternative is an entity such as George McGovern. 
So it's in effect a principle of the lesser of two evils, but such a significant difference that even though one uh, has very little to recommend him, the other has a monstrous totality of things to anti-recommend him. And therefore the anti-Nixonites in this context, in this election, are for Nixon. Get it? <laughs> Thank you very much. This course continues with Lecture 5.